Harry, this is a first. Not a first for us being in person together, but a first for us being in person with a microphone doing the podcast. It's true. I'm not sure how to react not being in front of a screen or uh, yeah. you know, being through the, the through the digital system, the digital ecosystem. This is going to be interesting because we've. It, this is going to be a, a split. So what you're about to hear, dear listener, is a two-part podcast. Um, at the beginning, we were recording under a lot of time pressure. Uh, our editor friend Levi was a day away from a a trip to Europe to his ancestral homelands. An international odyssey. (laughs) Yes. Um, And many of us had other pressing matters. So we recorded the first half knowing that it was going to be incomplete. And um, we're here now. Live in person. We're live in person. Live on location. Loosened by Grog in the Great Hunter Valley. In the um, (laughs) wonderful lands of the Wanneroo peoples. Um, When we first started recording this, I was in uh, Wiradjuri country, which is where our friend Jack is from. You'll hear him later. Um, he's, he's part of that mob and he gives us great insights on some of the history of Australia. Uh, but we're going to go through a lot of topics, so sit tight. It's probably a longer one, um, but we hope, even though it's a bit of a Frankenstein's monster... It's worth the effort. It's definitely worth the effort. And we've enjoyed every minute of it. So listeners, please enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to our third official instalment of the Incidental Encyclical podcast. This is one of our accompaniment podcasts, which goes alongside an upcoming release. And this one will be going alongside the release in about a month's time of Issue 3, Wisdom in Desert Places. Um, we've coming off the theme of Troubled Seas. In this odyssey, we're taking our first year from the journey up. In our second issue, we went to Troubled Seas, and now we are looking at um, new territory, a new theme, new mythologies. Uh, and so to explore this theme, we're looking at three texts, one from the ancient as always, which will be uh, Seneca's letter to Helvia, a letter that the famous Roman Stoic wrote from exile. We're going to be looking at the life of Simeon the Stylite, uh, which is a hagiographical text from the days of the early church about uh, an extreme desert ascetic. And we're going to be looking at Voss by Patrick White, who was a Nobel Prize winning Australian author. And Voss is a story based on a real expedition into the centre of Australia that went tragically wrong. So those are the texts. This is the context. I'm Samuel. I'm one of the editors here. And I have with me today two other editors, uh, Levi, Harry, and our guest, Jack. It's great to have you guys. Um, Thank you all for being here, Levi, Harry, and Jack. Would you guys be able to introduce yourselves a little? Hello, everyone. I'm Levi. You may have heard my voice before on previous podcast episodes I've had the honor of contributing to. Uh, as most of you know, I'm the translation columnist here at the Incidental Encyclical and also one of the members of our editorial team. Hello, I'm Harry, and uh, I've been on this podcast before, previously writing on The Odyssey, and this time we're going in a deep dive on Voss. I'm Jack. I'm good friends with these fellows, and I have a keen interest in Australian history. Jack has a lot of really great insights that I hope we'll be able to get to uh, about the the context of the novel we'll be talking about, which have I found really helpful. And um, yeah, he's been helping us write our exploration of Voss for the magazine, which will be coming out, like I said, about a month's time. So let's start chronologically. We don't have to. There's nothing telling us we should. But I think theme-wise, it's not a bad place to start. And I'd like to look at... Yeah, like to look at Seneca, who was quite famously one of the Roman Stoics. Now, Stoicism, we did a whole little podcast on this about a month ago, but Stoicism is a pretty 
it can be mis- a misunderstood term, it can be a nebulous term, it can be a hard to define term. So Levi, can you give us a bit of an overview? What is Stoicism? Is Stoicism sitting back, kicking back in a chair, allowing the world to pass you by and just sort of embracing it? Is it sort of a code for the modern warrior guru who wants to like a Hollywood action star who's, you know, taking every punch and then delivering them out with equal ferocity, you know, shaping his life that way. How is Stoicism historically practiced? What does it look like? Well, Stoicism, like all of what we might consider, you know, quintessentially Roman uh, philosophies, because that is what Stoicism is. Let's say the most famous philosophers are probably Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, obviously famously one of the last decent emperors of Rome, if you want to go so far. And, and other I know, Greeks living in Roman times, I should say, is a historical practice uh, which originated in Greece uh, as a philosophy. And it's it's not a passivity. It's not simply stoicism in the modern sense of, you know, grinning and bearing through levels of pain, although that is some, some amount of it. It's more of a outside of, let's say, the more esoteric sort of theories of metaphysics and logic that stoicism has within it because it is let's say a fully functioning ancient philosophical system the heart of what we might call the ethical implications of stoicism are are more around applying virtue to the situations you find yourself in especially to negative situations that confront you and turning them into opportunities for well the expression of virtue and to ennoble them in that way Right. And so it's it's a system or it's a, it's a way of seeing the world that allows you to take these negative things you're saying and respond virtuously. So virtue is an interesting word. It's, um, again, a word that in our more contemporary context is probably uh, can be contentious. So, Levi, what is virtuous to the Stoics? What do they place as the most important or most virtuous thing where, 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 what is shaping overall from the top down the way that they see the world um, in their yeah hierarchy of values and et cetera? Well, I mean, if we were to, let's say, look at the text that we've chosen for, for this month to mm. exemplify Stoicism, uh, Seneca's letter to Helvia, um, I think what, what we see most consistently, and we discussed this in the previous episode as well, is reason, logic. Uh, this, is, this is what Seneca seems to be drawing on. In, in, and this, this is more than just, you know, being clever about things. There's uh, a certain level of, it, it draws on the idea of phronesis from uh, ancient Greek uh, philosophy, which, you know, Plato talks about as well. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, hard for, it's hard for me to be specific. I might throw this over to Harry in a moment because see what his input is on this. But I see it as sort of a similar, you know, applying the right, choices to the right situation sort of this practical application of logic and reason and wisdom and i suppose the limitation of emotion in how you react to situations yeah i think that i think that is a really good summary because it's this question of you're faced with situations that fate deals and you don't have a choice how the environment comes to be but you do have a free will element that allows you to change your reactions and i suppose the the classical stoic sort of outlook is ultimately pragmatic in that sense um it doesn't it doesn't want to accept that there is anything you can do necessarily to change the environment but you can change how you appreciate it or or what you do in response to it um which is sort of it's that part has always sort of confused me because 
I suppose to the the Stoics, they they sort of want to have their cake and eat it too. In that they want to, they want there to be a um, uh, a world where there is no where there is no free will element, where it is it is simply the case and, and fate and contingent elements have have made things so. But then you suddenly have have a will that you can impose upon it. That's think, always sort of been confusing to me in the in the Stoics. Well, I think perhaps part of the reason for that perspective which to a modern person can seem uh, as you're pointing out harry you know quite confusing is that um the and we've talked about this you know when we discussed the odyssey and the character of Odysseus. i mean again another thing that we've done a whole bonus episode on just deep diving into how much we uh love that character and all the manifold aspects of it but uh, we've talked about the idea of rout and panic in the ancient world, the idea of possession, you know, there's famous incidents in which even great heroes like Ajax are possessed by a, a maddening spirit and lose control of themselves. Um, so I think the idea of, of a divine world, we re- can read the, um, the Stoics today and we can think, well, they seem essentially atheistic or, or, or agnostic perhaps, um, or, or or modern deistic like i'm sure you know your 17th century enlightenment thinker would would could read a stoic and and think of himself in very similar of having it as having a very similar mental framework but reason at least especially as, as seneca's framing it in letter to, in the letter to helvia and in other of his letters isn't uh, an abstract category is it levi no no certainly not it's not logic in how you might think of aristotelian syllogism mm. it's you know like i think i emphasized before and i'll say it again it's it's drawing on this idea from greek philosophy of sort of this very the practical application of, mm. of of wisdom and reason to to the situation at hand yeah and and reason in this case being like a a divine force almost that you mm. know through your action you can embody into the world um you know, I mean, Socrates famously, like the father of philosophy, talked about his daimon, you know, his his inner spirit that guided him. And he sort of, there's a sense in which Socrates is embodying the will of his daimon. Um, and I think you can, in certain of the Stoic texts, and I think Letter to Helvia has a little bit of this too, when, um, when, for example, Seneca consoles his mother and invites her to participate in the Stoic philosophy, he's asking her to take reason and allow it to guide her and he's not Mm. saying this simply in like a um you know like a modern person might say let your feelings guide you or let logic guide you but i think you know for the ancients and especially as the stoics see it reason is almost a supreme being if if we were to talk about maybe a a stoic metaphysics which again is a vague thing you know seneca is not committed to a particular metaphysics in in all of his texts you know what i mean i think letter to helvia is one of those where he expresses some ambiguity there but if reason is anything it's not like as the modern person might see it, a a vague or abstract category. It is, um, well, I mean, famously in the ancient world, categories were forces, you know. Yeah, uh, no, and I, I think here it might be useful. Um, we don't have much of what survives from Zeno of Athens, the founder of Stoicism, na- named so because Zeno taught it walking up and down the Stoa of Athens. Mm. Um, but there is there are fragments of what we have left from him. And Zeno sort of had this, um, Zeno very clearly sort of almost embodied the worldview of Heraclitus of the, of the Logos that the, mm. the divine reason that imbued the world is sort of Heraclitus viewed it as the only thing that remains stable, sort of everything has changed, but everything mm. does so in accordance with the Logos. 
And Zeno draws on this and he says that, you know, he sort of says in what might be very considered in a modern hippie way, he has this famous quote where he says, happiness is the flow of life, by which he actually means happiness is a life lived in accordance with the natural flow of the logos of the world. Yes, yeah. Of the divine yeah. reason of the world. Yeah, context is important because that's a very good, like, you know, bumper sticker for your combi van, but <laughs> I don't think <laughs> Um, and I, yeah. I think that's really it, though. It's this: the the Stoics see this point in having a hierarchical view of nature, and that there's an order to things which you sort of go, uh, exist in congruence with, yeah, or you or you leave congruence at your own peril. I think that's what the Stoics are trying to identify: that you sort of have to work with the river, that you have to work with the logos, or um, or it won't, things won't end well for you, or you won't you won't go through life as as happy as you could be. Yeah, I mean. I- it's interesting because, and I, and again, um, like there's a whole series of schools of philosophy out there in the ancient world. We've brought up, you know, by name, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and and this is a huge aspect of the context of ancient philosophy. And the Stoics aren't engaged in the metaphysical project that um, people in the Platonic schools, for example, might have been. But there was an awareness of this. Like to be an educated person in the ancient world, you would be aware of, you know, the Platonic system to some degree. And Seneca certainly is. And it's interesting because within Seneca's own understanding of Plato, uh, he doesn't categorize a human being as a a real thing. Um, Very much in that Heraclitean school, you know, as as Seneca reads Plato, there are these different categories, um, particularly the idea of you have your ideas, you know, your unchanging models that are eternal uh, you have the the idos, which is a more Aristotelian, you know, application in which the former idea exists in a thing. And then you have what is it's difficult to translate to English. The Latin, I believe, is quod communiter sunt, um, which is things that essentially quasi-exist. You know, the time or the void, as Seneca would char- characterize them, things that aren't maybe an idea that can be manifest in a physical object, but um, nonetheless have some bearing on us. But yeah, in, in Seneca's view, like this is reality. There's no human like human being, you know, in that categorization of things that truly are and truly exist. Now, this is Seneca's understanding of Plato. This isn't Seneca's understanding of Stoic metaphysics. But this is interesting because it's how he reads it. And as you're mentioning, Levi, there's something Heraclitan in that, the idea of identifying the logos, not something in the material world, not you know, the human being or the, the city state or the world as a permanent thing in which you can kind of uh, bring yourself into, into, into line with. What you have to bring yourself into line with is an eternal principle. Mm. And I think this is a moment where I'm going to, you know, this, this is going to be throw a bit of historical context around this. Again, sort of jumping back to the origins of Stoicism, um, Zeno's teacher was another famous philosopher, uh, but very famous in a different sense. Uh, Zeno was famously the student of Diogenes, the cynic, um, mm. the, the cynical philosopher who lived in a barrel and walked around in, in the nude through the streets of Athens and, you know, did all sorts of, I don't know, shameless things um, and embraced this life of asceticism. And you can kind of view this in the historical context of this is happening just after the conquests of Alexander the Great. Mm. And their world has just, the Greek world has just been expanded and people are moving city-states and, you know, you have Greek enclaves in Egypt and in, a well, we've had Greek enclaves in Asia Minor, but 
Pakistan, for in, example. In the yeah. Near East, all the yeah. way to Pakistan and, and um, mm. Afghanistan. So th- taking your value from, let's say, a real, let's say, uh, a divine order as manifest, let's say, in the social structure of the city-state or a divine order as manifest in, you know, fixed dogmatic religious practice mm. becomes more and more difficult. And you sort of get mm. this turn from Diogenes in this very personal ascetic turn. And then Zeno takes that and combines it with Platonism uh, in this, you know, sort of a, quite a beautiful syncretism that he mm. that he pulls off to get this, yeah, sort of a personal philosophy, um, mm. which is which is a bit strange because even even though Socrates was the gadfly of Athens, famously his analogy in the Republic is that of a city in harmony. Mm. Yeah, that is the great Socratic metaphor. I mean. Um... I mean, and, and others of Socrates, like, I mean, it's, it's it's less well known now, but the Timaeus was very important in the medieval era. And that's a very cosmic vision, but it's still, it, it's still an order defined by uh, humanity and their place within the world. Uh, whereas the, the Stoic application is, is different to the Socratic or the Platonic starting point for viewing the universe. And, um, it's interesting. So speaking of application and personal uh, personal philosophy, you can't really get much more personal than a letter to your mum, <laughs> which is the, the text we're looking at uh, in this issue. So this is uh, Seneca's letter to Helvia. And, uh, you know, as Levi was saying, Stoicism was a very interesting marriage, you know, of, of these different philosophical backgrounds coming together into a, a personal and lived practice. So, what, Levi, can you tell us some of the personal details in Seneca's life that led to him writing this letter? Um, I've mentioned earlier that it was written from exile, so what happened there? Seneca lived a, a very interesting life that, yeah, it's, it's important to understand his personal life and understanding the place of this letter in it. Um, he was born in a province uh, in Cordoba, in the Roman province of Hispania at the time was predominantly raised in Rome. His family moved back there. And there was this interesting interlude where he spends his 20s in Egypt uh, because his uncle-in-law, I think, his yeah, his aunt's husband was the prefect of Egypt. You know, so he's he's a member of the high political society of Rome. And in his 30s, he returns to Rome and enters into politics. Suddenly, in 41... Uh, or in AD 41, he finds himself uh, politically unpopular after the uh, transfer of imperial power from Caligula, the mad emperor, to Claudius, maybe slightly less mad, but slightly more uh, despicable in his own way. (laughs) Um, But he was accused of an affair with the the previous emperor Emperor Caligula's sister and found himself, because of this, exiled to uh, the island of Corsica. And, you know, he's writing this letter to his mother saying, you know, I've been exiled, but really it isn't so bad, which is something to say because Corsica is, we think of it now as a, as a bit of a, you know, it's a nice island in the Mediterranean, but for them, Corsica is a place of rugged mountains and few rivers and little arable land. And it's, it's not, there's a reason he was exiled there. So Corsica. Uh, as you mentioned, and as Seneca himself mentioned in the letter, not a perfect place. Um, craggy, mountainous, unruly inhabitants. How is Seneca approaching 
this consolation? What are the points that he wants his mother to understand in writing to her from exile? What is Seneca's own perspective on exile and how is that um, exemplary of his sort of stoic mindset? Harry, do you want to take this one? Well, I think it's interesting, right, because... Seneca then has these moments where he goes, well, you know, people move towns all the time, and and this is not a this is not a big deal. Why why should you worry, you know, mum? Why are you worried that I'm I'm going to another place when I suppose there's this there is this like anti psychologizing of of a thing and a rationalization of what's actually occurred when I'm when I'm being sent to exile. Really, I'm just moving town. When I'm in prison, I'm really just in another house. And I suppose these are, you could say these are sort of mechanisms to come to terms with things, but it's more, I think, about a framing of the the events in life, the way fate deals you a hand and how you respond to it. I think that's where, and, and Seneca, this, I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of convinced he's writing this as much for himself as he is for Helvia. Mm. Um, there's, there's a way in that he needs to add a, a rationalized sort of element to his, his situation. Uh, as you say, he didn't choose to be exiled, he, and he wouldn't have chosen this had he had an opportunity to avoid it. Um, but in that, he can sort of console the ones he's leaving behind as well as himself that, you know, what's going on is part of a, a sort of more cosmically ordered thing that he sort of just needs to apply philosophy to to cope with. Yeah, I think this is fascinating because, um, you know, I think today most people's experience of letter writing and correspondence it probably either comes from like watching a jane austen adaptation <laughs> or it comes from you know being a pen pal in fifth grade or something i i, I mean you know I, I wrote a lot of letters growing up but they were always very informal you know between siblings cousins friends over state uh, like in different states and and then of course it dies out, you know, um, as you get older and you get given a laptop or a phone, you know, these days there's very little reason to do it. So I think there can be some wrong presuppositions coming into something that's called a letter, you know. Um, but Seneca's letter to Helvia is very well crafted rhetorically. Um, and that shouldn't perhaps be too surprising given that he was a philosopher and a politician. Um, but it is something I think that is worth noting because there's a very interesting structure to it you know as uh, you mentioned harry the opening part is sort of a a very um aloof uh, reasoning Uh, he's reasoning through all these elements to his problem in a very kind of detached way well if you think about it you know imprisonment is just moving to a different house exile is just moving to a different land people move houses and lands all the time why should i be concerned and etc Yes, this is the the starting point for the letter. And then from there, he begins to apply it in a more personal context. And he'll eventually resolve this letter by applying it to his mother's own context. There's a a lot of very smooth and and brisk transitions between each of these main rhetorical cases he's making. But it's an interesting structure to be attentive to because it's not as simple as Seneca having an idea and then moving to the next idea and moving to the next idea as informal as that writing might be today this isn't what's going on here right it's a real it's a long it's a comprehensive argument um that goes from and it touches all of the as you said it's quite well crafted rhetorically it goes from making these sort of logical points 
and pointing out contradictions to, well, you know, dealing with sort of human affairs and, and saying why you shouldn't feel so bad about this emotionally. Um, it sort of, it touches all those bases and it makes me think that there's something, there's something going on. Well, I suppose there's a question whether he, this was, this letter was supposed to be, um, widely spread, you know, was, was the aim of this really to just go to one person and then be locked away forever? Or was this a, a greater sort of statement that he would have um, preferred for it to be published, whatever that means in, in sort of the Roman times? You know, how, how much distribution did he actually expect this writing to have? Yeah, no, it is, it is interesting. Um, I it's, think... per, it's personal without being so private, I think. Yes, yeah, it's very, very much so. I mean, there's, there's personal details of the family um, within the letter, but they're not personal details that weren't known to people who were aware of the political career of his uncle and his father and et cetera. So, yeah, I think there's an awareness in Seneca's own writing that, that he's... Um, He's crafting something that is can be personal, but as you're saying, not purely private. But it's yeah. But even so, like it's an interesting uh, case because this isn't a letter where Seneca is trying to provide a general idea of how to apply the system of Stoicism in abstract or for anybody. This is to his mother, and I think there's something there's something ab about the fact that it is directed at one person and how his mother a single real individual might apply stoicism that makes it so valuable in one of his better known uh, texts is um, that if, if it were just meant to be a general letter that anyone could pick up and go, oh, this is how me, an average person from any walk of life, any background, any century might apply stoicism into my life. I think it would have less staying power. Mm, and I think it's more, it's archetypal. I think it's archetypal of what they want to apply. It's not a, um, it's not a guidebook. Yeah, it touches on something broader, but it has to start in something personal. And in that way, the details of the personal can build out into something much bigger. To add some context to the severity of Seneca's exile, um, he's from the early empire, right? And while the, the values of the Republic have decayed somewhat, he's, he's brushing shoulders with the patrician class, even though he's not from them. And the values of the patrician, their property was made sacred in the same way that uh, the boundaries of Rome were sacred and mm. the family was tied uh, to the land and your ancestors, you'd have a mausoleum in the land and you'd keep them there and you'd appease them because they're still alive in the grave suffering. And that's where the, the hearth is, the focus, where you worship them. Mm. And so while he would not be doing that himself, he would not be uh, worshipping in the way a patrician would, he is with that patrician class he's, he's working with he's working with them so there would be some sort of i think uh social influence on that exile mm. would still be seen as something that's horrible uh, in yeah. a way that we probably don't understand as modern people no that, that's a really fantastic point um i mean it's i think yeah above everything like it's great to contextualize um and yeah it is absolutely important to know that you know in the in the ancient world to be a landed person, you know, to be part of the those upper echelons was not simply, you know, oh, you get you get to own slaves and have a farmhouse. Um, there was often a different system of of ritual engagement, and as you're pointing out, Jack, the the reason that exile is such a extreme punishment in much of the ancient world is because of these ritual reasons. Um, it's similar, like 
uh, I've, I've heard it pointed out before that in, for example, the Torah, the punishment of death or in exile is, is somewhat interchangeable and vague for what you might call the capital crimes. It's not always clear whether the punishment for something is, is an ex- exile from the, from the city or if it's stoning death. And there's, but there's a reality to that because if you're excluded from the city life, you're excluded from the, the temple practices, the ability to participate in city festivals, in the religious and civic life, which is a fate almost worse than death in that context. And as you're pointing out, Jack, there's something very similar in, in, in these, the neighboring pagan societies in which, and especially for the upper class or people in, in the, around the upper class, there is more of a reason to fear exile. Right. So the, the faith of the, or the ritual of the Roman patrician class, it's it's all family-based. And if you're exiled from the family home, you cannot conduct the rituals to appease them anymore. And you're it's made impor- faithless. Yeah, and it's important that, you know, Seneca is is a son of this family. And right. I mean, part of his early appeasement to his mother is that you still have other sons, because obviously there is this burden of if if, if all the sons go, you know, who, you know, that in this context they're looking to the the senior man of the family to conduct many of these rituals um mm. and so yeah part of the early consolation from seneca to his mother is look you still have your other sons there near you they are very different men from me they're very different men from each other but they're still you know one is pursued a very a good political career in order that he might support you the other one has pursued a study in philosophy that he might spend more time at home with you take comfort in that both of your sons love you to this extent in different ways but there's yeah there's there's maybe more context there as you're bringing out jack um and, and the last again, thing i'll say is he from the equestrian class or is he plebeian um i'll defer that Be- to Le- Le- <laughs> okay Be- because either way um him being exiled is a would have been a confirmation that because he would be a striver to the patrician class, and this would be the death knell of that. He's certainly not a patrician, and it would be very embarrassing for him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, any any chances of um, climbing higher up the social ladder would be shot in that in that sense. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to clarify that um, Seneca is actually from uh, native-born, not native-born Spanish parents, but his the, the family line, the Gens, is is native to Spain. So he's he's not even like let's say his family line would probably still be considered even foreign in Rome. Um, oh right, so he's he's very much an outsider. Yeah, plebeian certainly. <laughs> there you go. Well, I was going to say perhaps that's why there needs to be this sort of simplification of problems where it's just about moving houses and and um, not crying too much and so on. And because you know there are other sons remaining, but the the reality of this to a uh, to someone of uh, sort of high aspirations this is sort of over and there is, and there is no there is no way you could come back from this this was uh, a confirmation that your state in life was not going to change which I, I suppose sort of calls back to this the fatalistic element of the stoics you know this would be his realization that he couldn't aspire to the patrician class and yet even in that there's perhaps um, again part of this is is that as you're saying, Levi, the quote from the founder of Stoicism, the idea of happiness is to live in accordance with the flow of the world, the flow of the Logos. Part of this consolation goes beyond the material circumstances of his condition and his mother's condition. And this is part of the rhetorical flow of the piece. Um, we we begin with, you know, Seneca doing this somewhat abstract dismissal of, of these ideas that exile is bad, that de- deprivation is bad, you know, um, saying, well, 
actually the poor live much more happily than the rich because they have less distractions, for example. Oh, well, exile isn't so bad because peoples all around through all of time have moved from place to place and, and bettered themselves and benefited from that. Uh, and then he goes into his own application where he talks about famous Romans who've been exiled and how often that was better for their political careers or that, that they were ennobled politically because of their exile. Um, but I think it's interesting because when he comes finally to apply sort of the apply his argument to the personal circumstances of his mother so he's moved from the general outline in through sort of application to himself and then finally to his mother he brings up um levi you mentioned that uh seneca has spent some time in egypt in his 20s so he brings up his uncle who was governor there and more specifically he brings up his uncle's wife who would have been a part of you know the family and, and well known to his mother and he brings out her conduct and brings out the fact that while she was the wife of the governor of Egypt, uh, she she conducted herself socially in, in a very distinguished way that brought no scandal at any point on her. And he makes make the point to his mother that Egypt is like the most scandalous place in the empire. So this is a big achievement if you can remain, you know, there without having scandal attached to you. But then the story he brings out most forcefully is that of... Uh, the shipwreck of his uncle and aunt on their way back from their post in Egypt. Uh, and in this story, uh, the ship that they're traveling on is wrecked and his aunt, instead of simply trying to save herself, actually manages to retrieve the dead body of her husband from the wreckage and carry that to safety as well which is this extreme act of piety. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that if a son were to do, you know, you, you kind of you expect that in like a legend from this elder son, perhaps. But Seneca's bringing up this real life example of um, this man's wife showing this extreme act of piety. And the circumstance is important because in the circumstance of a shipwreck, all is lost. You have no possession. You have limited chance of survival. She had no idea if retrieving this, the body of her husband would cause her to drown as well. Um, there is no certainty of any of this stuff. And so there's, there's sort of, um, yeah, there's this, there's this consolation inherent to the idea, which is underlying that example, that, you know, Seneca is not consoling his mother by saying, at the end of the day, at the end of the letter, he's not saying, well, you know, who, who knows, maybe I'll be reinstated and have a good political career later. That's not the bulk of his argument. Um, that wouldn't be a very stoic argument either. Like he, he does bring up the fact that some people have benefited, benefited politically by exile, but that's not the dry, that's not the concluding point of his argument. The, the, the concluding point very much is themed around this idea of ruin and how even in ruin, you can act in a way that is, that, that is so in line with the higher principles that no matter what happens in that scenario, no matter what survived from the wreckage, no matter how little survives from the wreckage, you have done well. So it's like the very act of her attempting to save the body of her husband, it, had she not survived, it still would have been a pious and noble act. And mm. even if nothing else survived from the wreckage, he, he says, if only she, she had lived in the age of the great poets, you know, they would have written countless lyrics on this this one act of virtue. And Which sort of recalls, like in the Iliad, for example, the recovering of Patroclus' body and, and why yeah. they're so obsessed with, um, you know, the, the bodies of the heroes not being left to the dogs of Ilium. Mm, mm. And it's it's interesting that, yeah, it's it's I think this is where you see Stoicism 
breaking at least Seneca's flavor of stoicism. No, I, I think it's fair to characterize all of stoicism like this as breaking perhaps from that traditional sort of Greco-Roman materiality of virtue that we've hit upon, you know, quite a few times in these podcast episodes, because it's, it's like what you're saying, even if it had been self-sacrificial and the end hadn't been achieved, it would have still been the right thing to do. Mm. Which is, and, and, you know, Seneca speaks in this letter also, yeah, of, of, let's say the, the impermanence of or the, the, the ignorance in investing value in material things, despite that sort of being, you know, how much of the structure of, you know, Greco-Roman ethics and morality was structured in their idea of honor. Uh, I also do just want to quickly correct myself. The family of uh, Seneca's family has been based in Hispania since its first attestation, but they're fairly sure they were colonists originally from mainland Italy. They're not ah, native born. There you go. Okay. Spanish. <laughs> so, uh, so like, um, they're, they're like the equivalent of a, you know, Massachusetts Yankee or something like <laughs> <laughs> old, old blood. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this is interesting. And I want to, I think, move from here now to talk about our second um, text and a second exploration of this theme, because we've looked here at how, uh, as you said, Levi, there's something in Seneca which begins to sow the seed of a a movement away from materiality as the goal. Um, material outcome is not the ultimate end, and it you can still have a virtuous and a a true and a good result from something that doesn't involve claiming the trophy or coming back with the goods and the gear. And yet, as we mentioned earlier, Seneca would not choose exile. I don't think anyone would look at Seneca as great as he was a Stoic philosopher and say, oh man, if he had the opportunity, he'd just put himself into exile. <laughs> That's not, as, as much as he writes about conducting himself well within that, there is still a way in which he sees the world which means that though he can take exile well, it isn't a practice that he would employ as a means of living out his philosophy. For him, I don't think Stoicism is uh, would be expressed necessarily involuntarily going into this into this state of exile. Um, and this is something we're coming to now with um, the idea of a more voluntary form of exile, a form of exile in which there isn't the underlying supposition that this might benefit your political career or that the end result of this exile will be a return to civilization and a reinstatement into the place you were before. Um, we're looking at the kind of exile that was practiced by uh, the ascetics, the hermits and the monks of the early church. That was a perfect transition. So it's interesting. I'd like to bring out something. So for those who maybe, maybe some people have picked up on this, maybe some people haven't, but the way that we've been theming this year's issues for the incidental encyclical has been, um, has been based around the idea of this, the Exodus narrative. We begin with the journey up, we pass through the, the waters, the troubled seas, and now we're looking for our mentor out in the, in the most remote place. We're looking for the law. We're looking for guidance. We're looking for wisdom in desert places. 
Um, this is the present theme. And no, the promised land is not the theme for the next issue. <laughs> We're not going to stoop to that. It's going to be something different. But uh, I wanted to explore over the course of this year in the magazine, you know, the the way in which this um, narrative can, can play out. And so that's why we've been looking at all these, these classic works and the ways that they refract this theme and the meanings contained within them. And so there's something very important about the idea of seeking wisdom in desert places. Um, and I'll turn to the narrative of the Exodus itself to begin this analysis. And I, and I promise I will tie this back into our present topic. But within the Exodus, when the people go out into the desert and they go out and receive the law and all that sort of thing happens, um, they're actually a very large, uh, non-homogenous sort of erratic body at the time that that happens. You know, it's mentioned in the text that many other peoples leave with the descendants of Jacob out into the desert, Egyptians, Hittites, etc. Right, the body of this people has grown beyond its traditional margins of, you know, matrilineal descent or patrilineal descent or whatever was practiced in those early days, which we have prior to the, the law itself being given. The people go out and then in this place, in this hostile place in which they're forced to fast, you know, when food is um, at first irregular and then comes via a very structured and and disciplined manner um they're going through all these sort of ascetic moments the law comes to them and their identity is defined they become a people the law gives them the practices the rituals the under self-understanding to define them now as the new nation that god has called in the desert so this is this is part of the sort of um meta myth if you will or the or the structure of the story you go out, and when you go out originally, there's too much, and then you receive the principle that will tie you all together. Um, so I remember um, this is a few, quite a few months ago now, um, but I was thinking through this present theme, wisdom in desert places. And I was thinking through the idea of going out into the desert with too much and receiving the the law, the wisdom that defines you, that trims you down that pairs you and i think this is very much a theme in the the third work we're looking at as well voss but more on that later but i was thinking about the um early church and i was um thinking to myself well there was no exodus moment for them was there i mean the church got really big especially post fourth century when the the edicts of toleration are passed and um and then they build all these churches and it's kind of the rest is history from there um, but I stopped myself and I thought, no, I th the, the, the same pattern that defined the Old Testament body of the people of God can be applied to the what you call the New Israel. That's how the early church saw themselves as the New Israel. So they the same pattern emerges. Um, the church, as everyone presumably knows, went through some pretty intense persecutions through the Roman period. You had a lot of emperors, especially leading up to, um, through the Tetrarchy, leading up to Constantine, who claimed toleration, um, who pursued some pretty intense purgation practices to try and get rid of Christians from various provinces of the empire. And so this is a, perhaps an analogous moment to the idea of enslavement in Egypt. Um, if we're looking at the patterns of these stories. 
And from there, all of a sudden, liberation occurs. The Edict of Toleration is passed, or the people are able to leave you know, the slavery of the pharaoh and go out. And the body grows, because all of a sudden, well, why not become a Christian, right? <laughs> You're not going to get persecuted for it. Uh, you know, why not become a priest? You get a tax break now. <laughs> you know, there's there's this there's this moment in which all of a sudden the body of that of that um institution of that people grows. It can grow. And it's in the same moment that almost voluntarily, well, not almost, voluntarily, it is truly voluntarily, you have a class of people from within that who go off and go into exile in the desert. It's not the same as the, in all of its aspects, as the narrative of the Exodus, but it shares this pattern. The body grows in the fourth century, and then all of a sudden, this ascetic practice develops. Hermits, monks, bodies of people going into the desert and pursuing ascetical practices, and through that, defining the body of the larger whole right they are through their discipline through their teachings creating the bedrock for what would become then the theology the the self-definition of the larger whole so i don't know that might all sound a little bit what's the point right okay yeah so there's there's the story there's this old story from this book the bible um and in it these things happen and you're saying that in history a similar pattern occurs with the church what is the point well we're going to look briefly now at a form of literature called hagiography the life of a holy person of a saint and most people probably haven't read a hagiography although i contend that most good literature especially russian literature is essentially hagiography um Despite the fact that it's not a dominant form of literature anymore, for about a thousand years, it was. Uh, Throughout what we would term the Middle Ages, and however loosely you want to define that, you know, that's up to you. But for a very long time, in in a large extent of the world, we're talking from, let's say, Ireland to, you know, Ethiopia, parts of Russia. Like, this is a huge uh, area of the world uh, that was affected by Christianity. Hagiography was what people read the stories that people wrote. This is the bulk of the literature from this time. So it could be dismissed. It could You could say, well, I'm not interested in that. But for those who do want to stick around and think about it um, you know, with us, I think there's something valuable in it. Now, I promise I will tie this in. The story of Simeon the Stylite, Simeon the Elder, right? Um, this was a man who decided in his life after spending some time in a monastery, to go out into the desert, live by himself atop a pillar. And atop that pillar, he would stand incessantly, he would fast frequently, and he would pray. Um, It's a very simple story on on that surface. But within the accounts that were written, um, and all of these accounts, by the way, were written very shortly after his lifespan. So we, we have a very good idea that this person existed and a fair amount of stories about him are decently reliable like they do concord with historical details quite well so this isn't just like um saint george or something like that like a story that someone could look at and go well that's silly there's a man going off to egypt to fighting a dragon and all these stories are written down a thousand years after it meant to happen in a place a thousand miles away no these the the um life of saint simon the stylite is something that we can attest to um, with varying degrees of, you know, depending on your historical lens, uh, accuracy. 
so here's a man who goes out, goes atop a mountain, ascends a pillar, stands, prays, fasts. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's nice. But the interesting way in which these texts are written is such that St. Simon the Stylite is in his hagiographies, which obviously he didn't write, he is presented as a Moses figure. And this isn't just an accident because it's something that Simon the Stylite himself seemed to have actively encouraged in his life. He pursues practices, ascetic practices, which only Moses is known to have practiced in the stories of the scriptures, such as standing atop a mountain for 40 days and nights fasting. Now, there are other characters in the scriptures who have, you know, there are stories about them fasting for 40 days and nights, Elijah, the Christ. Um, but only one of those did it while standing the whole time and standing atop a mountain. That's Moses. So you have a you have a person, Simeon the Stylite, in this phase of the early church who is going out and trying to live the life of a previous uh, a previous saint, a previous exemplar. Um, what I am trying to drive at is that, again, this is a way of seeing the world, which is perhaps lost to us. But the reason I want to bring out the idea of the pattern of the Exodus being echoed in the pattern of the early church, and the reason I want to focus on uh, the hagiography of Simeon the Stylite is because we all live today and we do exactly this. We find somebody we like and we want to be either consciously or subconsciously compared to them, right? Um, I, for example, uh, am a, a f- major aficionado of Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> I like Indiana Jones. I like wearing uh, loose linen shirts with three buttons down and a fedora, right? And running around uh, in the summer heat, you know, uh, pretending I've got a bull whip at my side, right? Um I, I am a history fan, right? A large part of my obsession with history has come through media such as this, right? I, I, I will never be an archaeologist, but if I could go back, maybe I would be. So the question I want to get at is why? What is the idea inherent in this emulation? And how is it practiced? How has it gone about? The genre of hagiography as a form of literature is interesting because within this genre, the point of the stories is for you to then copy this person that you have read about. People talk about how in the Middle Ages there was this, you know, synthesis of of art. There was a synthesis of all these different cultural things, and that's why we get things like the cathedrals being built, very tightly integrated, you know, systems of culture and belief existed. Something that was essential to that worldview that we don't see is the pattern of something like a hagiography. So we have St. Simeon the Stylite. He consciously bases his life upon that of Moses. Moses's life in the scripture is drawn with thousands of parallels to the life of Christ, you know, as the New Testament writers write this down. So there's a pattern, there's, 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 a, there's a pattern occurring within St. Simeon the Stylite's life, where he's emulating one person whose life itself is being used as a reflection of another. And then this is all written down into a hagiography, which you are then meant to read 
and take on elements of that into your own life. This is what I'm trying to get at is uh, this pattern, this spiral of emulation, uh, this, this spiral is part of the way in which you can develop, you can build these beautiful, cohesive ways of seeing the world. Um, which we, you know, look at and say, well, how do they build those amazing cathedrals? That's like the the vision over a hundred years for all these people to work together and create these things uh, is is phenomenal. And I think it starts in 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 things like this, and I think it starts in the desert. Um, but yeah, I'd like to. I, I mean, I don't know if we should move on from this, but um, if anyone does want to, I mean, add anything, I might add some trivia. So please do. So Seneca. He's exiled from his family. He has to write to his mother. He's not with her. Mm. But for St. Simeon, his mother actually comes and stays um, and builds a house by his by his tower, right? Mm. And furthermore, he's always looking up into the heavens, into the sky. And uh, that reflects his constant prayer. And he keeps in his mind always the mother of God. Mm. So where Seneca is uh, separated from his family, when St. Simeon answers this call from Christ this monastic call to to leave your family and follow him, his family actually follows him as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that is, that's, I mean, again, that's a powerful, a powerful moment because as we talked about before, exile is not something that Seneca, you know, chooses, but he tries to conduct himself well in it and console his family. But for the ascetic, exile is not just a choice, it's almost a necessity. So speaking of, entering the desert as an ascetic practice speaking of uh entering the desert and stripping yourself away until only the essential parts remain uh speaking of going out and encountering god in the wilderness uh the final work we have today is a modern australian novel by Nobel Prize winner Patrick White, called Voss. Um, Harry, do you want to give us any background to this? Yeah, absolutely. So th- this novel, which is now, I suppose, regarded as one of the great Australian novels and and, and sort of subverts or riffs on the, the, the classic Bush novel, was written by Patrick White, who was born in 1912 in London and was a, pr- a prolific writer, um, writing many plays and novels, 12 novels, eight plays, um, and three collections of short stories in a, in a career spanning from 1935 to 1987. For this book, Voss, he was awarded the inaugural um, Miles Franklin Award, um, which is, I suppose, the most prominent literary award in Australia now, and later uh, went on to, re- to be the only Australian recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature. And I suppose in Voss, um, it's really based on, loosely based on, the exploits of the Prussian explorer Ludwig Leithart, who, um, like many Europeans, travelled out into the Australian bushland never to return and engaged in these sort of tragic tragic adventures that became infam- infamous over time, but in their own times was sort of characterised as, as mad as madmen uh, quite often, that these people didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. They, they had a different sort of view on things um, compared to the the colonials who were only sort of uh, interested as so far as they could exploit the bushland. Um, 
Voss, I suppose, as a interest as a character, he is constantly at odds with the uh, pre-existing colonial ideas and sentiments. So Jack and I had a really good discussion about this earlier in the week. Um, I I rang Jack because I wanted to get um, some of his manifold insights on this period of Australian history. Um, and I'll throw over to him very briefly because I'd love for him to recap um, some of that now. But yeah, as you mentioned, so Voss is this novel based off uh, loosely the life and tragedy of the Prussian explorer Ludwig Leichhardt. And um, yeah, it deals with um, the uh, expedition of Johann Ulrich Voss as he uh, sets forth from Newcastle and crosses the Darling Downs and goes into uh, the desert in, you know, in a publicly funded uh, expedition uh, to bring back some scientific knowledge, glory, and et cetera. And the whole time he is uh, contending with the people around him, some of which he didn't invite on the expedition, but who came along anyway and to, with whom he has um, various degrees of conflict. And he's also experiencing uh, these visions and dreams which he shares with his uh, love, his lover, who is named uh, Laura Trevelyan and is the daughter of the merchant funding the expedition. And they've only met a few times. They only had a few weeks in which they met and interacted. But as the book goes on, they, they and as, it, as Voss travels farther and farther out, farther than letters can now reach, their communication becomes that of the form of dreams. And... Voss is a is a mad character, you know the mad explorer. It's it's it's, it's a fun premise, and um, Patrick White apparently led to his editor, you know, had the had the very general idea of the plot very early on. You know, he he simply wanted to write a story about the mad German explorer, and um, part of this madness, as you mentioned, Harry, at least to the people around him, is an attitude which stands very strongly in contrast i might use the word starkly here given that's the general word for strong um very starkly in contrast to the colonial attitudes around him and this is exemplified from moment to moment throughout the book and um especially as as voss comes in contact with the aboriginal peoples and the way in which he he kind of sees them and sees himself in relation to them uh, and the ultimate tragedy of the expedition coming to an end because of uh, the the violence of Australian Aboriginals in the desert. Um, this book isn't, by the way, you know, uh, there to, to uh, vilify or etc. Uh, it's it's just a wonderful uh, towards the end meditative journey through uh, the extremes of privation and um, the peoples who can survive in that environment. But there is this as I mentioned, strong contrast. Voss does not think like the colonials do. The colonials have um, a different relationship to the land than Voss does. Voss is an explorer. He's not there to settle it, to farm it, to run sheep on it. He doesn't see the land as a terra nullius in the same way that the settlers do. He's not proclaiming terra nullius that he might come in and employ his own system of agriculture. If Voss does see the land as a terra nullius, it's because Voss seems to see everything as a sort of void or wasteland. Um, and this is marked in the early stages of the novel when it's much more of a social novel and um, Voss is spending time in society and he clearly 
cannot stand it. And he seems to sort of interpret even those environments, even dinner parties as sort of a desert in which he's trapped. But I wanted to draw out, I'd love to throw over to Jack now, there's something of an irony present in a lot of modern colonial myths and literature. Uh, something I've written about previously in relation to like, you know, the works of, for example, Herman Melville or Joseph Conrad, but particularly in this book, there is an irony inherent in the myth of Terra Nullius, which I think is not just explored in this book, but can be attested to in, in just history itself. Jack, you are far more knowledgeable on this than I would. Would I be able to get you to just expand a little on uh, the early colonial period and the kind of historical context of that in Australia? So we know from, from Cook's letters that the mission, the colony to Australia was meant to be peaceful. And this was certainly the original intention. Um, however, as a consequence of the colonists coming and, and settling here, um, the indigenous population, which was between 300,000 and a million prior to 1788, uh, and some estimates up to 3 million, some new estimates. Um, by 1900, this is reduced to about 93,000, um, which is apocalyptic, even if you take the most conservative estimate of 300,000, that's two in three people dying. Um, and we, we know from the the frontier wars, uh, only 20,000 or so indigenous people die in the frontier wars from settlers and, and uh, convicts and a few uh, military expeditions going out and about 2,000 uh, settlers die from that. Um, so even if we ignore, you know, and we take the most liberal interpretation of um, of, of violence. Uh, there's this apocalyptic effect of disease that the coming of the colonists has on indigenous people, and so the rather uh, advanced forms of land management, which was uh, a sort of cyclical uh, firing of of grassland, uh, which was the good land and, and not the bush, which Time and time again, in, in so many um, letters and journals, uh, early colonists talk about how all of the eastern coast, the eastern coast seems like a, a well-watered grassland, uh, and uh, they use the term uh, a gentleman's park over and over again. Everyone's calling it a gentleman's park, and it's this early art in Australia that's there's a bit of controversy. You know, is it depicting Australia to look so nice because they're trying to attract people here, or is it really like that? Because it doesn't look like that now. And there's certainly a case to be made that because of indigenous land management, um, the environment was much better in the past uh, in terms of the grassland. And the soils were much healthier. They were, they were lighter. And as uh, colonists went out on their, their steeds into the plains, they talk about how um, the hooves just sink into the ground because the, the soil is so light and airy and it, they kick up dust uh, for miles and miles. So there's this constant expansion through these, um, throughout the East Coast into these well-managed lands by Indigenous people. But as they sort of disappear, so does this upkeep of the land. And, and so just to pause you, um, the upkeep of the land, that involves burnings and et cetera, doesn't it? Right, you're right. Every, every two to four or six years, um, integrated into ritual and culture. Um, there's burning some specific plants at, at low temperatures that doesn't damage 
uh, the environment, but instead encourages things to grow with new shoots, which are, of course the most nutritious and they bring um, animals to graze upon. And so um, this is to facilitate, you know, uh, like the grasslands to facilitate hunting, hunting and et cetera. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and the colonists, um, they don't understand these burnings. They, they write, like, oh, the natives are just burning off bush again. Um, they don't see this connection between the burning and maintaining and vivifying, you know, healthy land. And so the desert starts to encroach upon these plains, and it's doing so today still. But also, the indigenous people further out, uh, these diseases have gone through several um, through several other peoples before they get to that. So they're a lot more resilient to the disease, and they can see the, the expansion of the colonists. So they are more violent. So certainly for Voss, he's going out into a harsh environment where the indigenous people are more aggressive, they're more willing to defend their land, and they're more capable because they haven't suffered this apocalyptic uh, loss of life and culture. Mm. Um, and he's going out into this expanding more of the desert. And I think, unless you have any other questions, I think that's well, uh, the context I'd add. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess as well I'm interested because you mentioned that, you know, as part of this process that occurs as as disease, you know, ravages a lot of the, the people living in these grassland areas that they have maintained for, you know, countless, um, you know, countless years they've maintained these grasslands. Um, the as you mentioned, the colonists see this and they think, well, this is makes no sense. This isn't land management as far as we can understand it. Um, and so, and that's part of the perhaps, you know, raison d'etre of, of the pronouncement of terra nullius, right, is the idea that, well, we need to bring in our own ag agriculture. We're going we're gonna to turn this land into something that is usable as we see fit. Um, the You know, the pronouncement of terra nullius kind of carries this idea that the land is not, being used the way we see fit it is a void we must fill um but and this is purely as you've explained it to me um jack but uh so as it happens you know the the, the colonists who arrive and begin to run livestock on these grasslands that they see as so fertile and lush um it doesn't have the effect that anyone would have expected does it no, so <clears throat> we see with uh, with large grazing herds, um, as they move over the soil, it compacts it. And this isn't a problem if they're continually mobile, as these herds are in nature. Like you might see the buffalo in the the plains in North America, right, before uh, mm. the, the colonists come, uh, because they, they eat the grass and they, uh, they tread their manure into the ground and then they keep moving. So it, it fertilizes the soil. But we see with Australia, um, we start to parcel up this land. And instead of constantly moving, these herd animals remain still on paddocks and they compact the land. And there's really this incredible um, change that we're not even aware of, of, of this um, of this vast, you know, golden plains in Australia, this nice grassland uh, to compacted soil, which uh, stops water from being able to infiltrate deeper into the ground. Um, it kills off grass, so th the roots can't hold that water. And it's still it's still raining, right? Mm, so that mm. water, instead of going so through... So it has to go somewhere. Right, instead of going through these many well-watered creeks and, and billabongs, which are so important in early Australia, 
mm. um, which are everywhere throughout the plains, they instead flow into these larger, more powerful rivers that erode uh, the soils. So we've got more intense droughts, more intense floods, and because there isn't this regular burning um, of the bush and of the, the grassland, our bushfires are so much more intense. And there's a constant receding of this arable grassland uh, to desert. And this goes on to today. So really, well, there's I, this. Go on. I mean, it's, well, I was going to say, it's interesting because you mentioned uh, early in the week the, the Riverina area, which is um, where I'm living right now, Riverina of uh, New South right. Wales. And you have um, you have heritage with the, you know, right, so, your, your family So my mom's the Radjuri. Yeah. They, they stretch from, um, from Tumut. Uh, up to Mudgee and uh, halfway up to Broken Hill. And there's yeah. about... Uh, yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, it's interesting because, I mean, um, you have a connection to this place. I'm living here right now. I can see the... the, the Desertification, uh, yeah. Desertification, yeah, yeah. That, you know, kind of happening. You know, you go for a drive and uh, the, these are the, some of the biggest rivers in Australia. Um, we have big, you know, hydro projects going on here. And yet, you can, you, know, you can go for these drives and see the encroachment in what was, you know, meant to be the big agricultural basin. And part of the reason that to build the Snowy Hydro project, which is one of the biggest infrastructure projects yeah. in the nation, is to try and keep the irrigation consistent in a region that shouldn't have needed um shouldn't have needed sort of the external, you know, hydro project to keep it going. Because it should just be naturally um very, very fertile. Right. And you, and you mentioned earlier that it shouldn't be like this, but we have to understand that the land was only this uh, gentleman's park because of this constant maintenance mm. by Indigenous people. It, Australia wasn't like this through happenstance or creation. It was it was made deliberately by the people. And I guess this comes to the idea of, of man's place in the world. Yeah. Of, yeah. of, this, of this logos you are talking about earlier and, and working with rather than against nature. Yeah. Do you want no, to say anything about that? Well, no, I, I was going to say, because I think I think this is what's interesting to me, is that I, I feel like a lot of colonial myths have this irony inherent in them. And the irony I see in the Terra Nullius myth is if you begin with the idea that the land is not being used the way we see fit, it is a void we must fill. Right. At least in Australia, the way that this, you know, ends is that the real with the realization that the land cannot be used the way we see fit it is a void right, it we does become not fill yeah <laughs> we make it void you pronounce not it void intentionally with but... yeah and yeah. then all of a sudden i mean as you're mentioning drought flood bushfire i mean these are things that every australian knows quite intimately because most people have right i mean they happen even it's you know in sydney in our in our one of our in our larger city you know the, you have bushfires you have the the droughts that come through and then suddenly the the reservoirs are at an all-time low and um you know sydney was settled because of its uh incredible fertility you know that was the idea that banks yep. selected the spot because he assumed the soil would be perfect for it for a settlement and yet you know now you end up with these um the, i mean catastrophic events just happen here on a regular basis right uh, whereas they didn't in the past or if they did they were much less intense and and, they uh, and less often yes yeah well and i think like the other odd thing is that yeah, you mentioned for example the billabong, which is something which, as you grow up, you sort of assume is a um, an intrinsic part of sort of Australian folklore, both the on the Aboriginal um, stories that you you hear, you know, growing up, yeah. but also in things like the Lawson, Banjo Patterson, 
um, you know, the, the the billabong is something that is is part of our folklore, both the settlers and the indigenous peoples. And yet, I don't think I can name the last time I saw it, like a, a billabong with water in it. <laughs> right, know? and that's because of how we treat the land. Mm. And to, to give sort of balance for you, not all farmers are, are unaware of this influence. Mm. Um, and for instance, there's Peter Andrews, who does natural sequence farming. He said uh, prime ministers come to visit him, although whether that's helpful or not remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, and his whole thing is slowing down the water, keeping it still, getting it to sequester into the soil, which you do by, you know, planting trees and so on on embankments and putting mm. rocks in the, the water flow to slow it down. And while we don't have these billabongs as this constant presence as early Australians did, um, it's certainly possible. Mm. So it's not something that's gone forever. Well, and this is where I wanted to want to. This is where I want to tie it back to the theme of wisdom in desert places, because I think that this realization comes about primarily through an encounter with the desert. Um, as you mentioned, for example, with the indigenous groups who live in uh, much more classical desert, I suppose environments. Right. Um, their land management practices like the the, the um sorry I'll, I'll jump back a bit the the settler is never really going to go out and try and tame that land you know no, it's, it's, it's too much of an investment but it's, and it's clear also that, not valuable yes them. but it's clear that people can manage it and survive there right um because there are groups who have been living there for a very long time doing just that and so i think this is a moment this is the moment in our, in our history as a nation as australians and i and it's a moment that I think occurs in the novel Voss, which I, which we'll get to at a later time. Um, but this is this is the moment of our wisdom in desert places, I believe, is that if you want to understand at, at a glance just the untenable nature of the Terranullius effort, the idea of, you know, let's transform this void and employ our own agriculture here, you look at the desert. Because then you will realise that we will never be able to do anything with this land, but somehow there are people out there doing that. And then if you just keep taking those steps backwards, you know, closer to the coast, closer to the lands that are meant to be more arable, you'll realise at each step of the way that there were people the whole time doing this, not just in the desert, but in the in the bush, in the grasslands, on the coasts, um, and their practices were there. Uh, and, and it might take you a look out to the desert to realise that, these practices uh, exist, these practices will achieve what uh, maybe Western agriculture or in European style agriculture uh, cannot in right. Australia. Sorry? The, the vivifying. And there's this, yeah. there's this genre of theme in the last century of the desert growing out, engulfing and swallowing up the cities on the coast, especially in Western Australia. They have this, this uh, literary theme. Mm. Um, or, you know, just the idea of the, the colonies on the coast being this little little shelf and they're about to be brushed off into the ocean as yes. the desert expands and the 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 anger of the natives are being displaced comes and brings wrath upon them and again it's this ironic thing where it's like this is only the case because of how we treated the land yeah and so this this is a pretty good segue into Voss, which is where we'll have to leave the discussion for now but um i suppose you know what we're seeing today is if you don't go out into the desert to find this wisdom the desert will come to you and force it <laughs> on you. Right, like, right. If you don't voluntarily make this ascetic move, you know, um, it's similar, I guess, to to maybe, um, I'll tie this back to the Roman example, right? If you don't 
put yourself in a state of exile, you will commit an action which puts you there, right? If you don't have the perspective of exile as, a, as, a, as for example, your Roman politician, your patrician, then you are far more likely to breach, make a breach in your conduct that will put you into exile, right? If you get complacent, if you get comfortable in your in in that in that environment, um, you know, have an affair with an emperor's niece or something like that, then there you go. Exile becomes the result. So you, the desert will come out and meet you. Uh, and it's a theme, you know, in in that church context too, right? If you don't voluntarily go out. Uh, in this ascetic context and encounter the desert, the desert will come in and infiltrate the the heart, the inside. Um, mm. If you don't have people out there, for, so this is, I guess this is the application maybe in the early church context, I make it a little bit, little bit less vague. If you don't have people out there experiencing privation and really being able to fast and think deeply about the tenets of your faith, of their faith, of the faith, then the people... That if you don't have those people thinking deeply and really gaining that understanding through probation and, and uh, asceticism, you're far more susceptible to heresy. You know that that's the that's the strength provided by the the cenobite and the hermit out in the desert. Um, and again, applying it to this this context of our own history, and this is where we'll you know lead into the novel Voss. Is if you don't go out and encounter the desert, the desert will reach out anyway. Right. You. So you said earlier that Israel, when they leave Egypt, they go into the, the promised land, they mm. become a new nation of the desert. And I yes. think Australia uh, has to confront this as well. Australia is a, a new nation of the desert. We've been uh, a nation of the coast. And I think this confrontation with the desert is unavoidable. And you'll be able to speak to this uh, when you discuss for us. Well, let's get into Voss. So Voss is written in 1957 sure. by Patrick White. Right. So Patrick White, he's born in England, right? Um, but his family is sort of, they're part of the Australian New he, South Wales colony. Right. He has these sort of, um, he has colonial connections, really. He's, he's sort of a, a son of the empire in that sense. Mm. And um, But there's sort of an uneasiness at that time period where there's, a sort of um, event in, in uh, a movement in literature, I suppose, to sort of reconcile the Anglo-Australian into the Australian landscape. Mm. And there's there's various sort of cultural movements at that time that were trying to, you know, let's turn let's turn Aboriginal culture into um, into opera. Let's let's mm. go the other way around. Let's try and where can we synthesize these things together and make yes. this work? How yeah. can we figure out our modern identity? Yeah. Um, Patrick White, I think, sort of is playing into this to some level but the i think the key theme in Voss is, is about this being humbled by the desert yeah very much that very it's, much it's and so there's this distinction that plays out in the very very beginning which is that between the anglo-colonials and the this in, uh this explorer the, the mad explorer the prussian explorer yes they there's a different attitude um between these two groups and i suppose that uh, in Voss, there's this encapsulation of a Nietzschean man, a man who's willing to power. Yes, he's coming from these Prussian roots. He's coming into this, into the vastness of Australia to find destiny, to impose his will yes. on the world. 
He, and he wants to, he says early on, if we're to believe Boss's own words, he says that he does want to understand Australia as it is. Yeah. Whereas the the colonial class that's currently running sheep and doing trade... The shopkeeper class, the, the shop, most part. Yeah. The shopkeeper the class. Yeah. That they're not, they don't understand what Australia is. No. They have, they see Australia and they say, well, this is, there's money to be made. There's yes. rivers of gold. There's, yeah. there's sheep you can run. Yeah. But that's not an understanding of the place in itself. No, no. I mean, I think even symbolically, as, as, as we especially now know, as, um, and I'm sure the listeners having heard, you know, Jack describe the effect of agriculture, if, if, if you don't already know this, you, sheep were so crucial to the Australian economy. Right. Um, um, and I'm, I'm sure most Australians have an awareness of this. Right. But the introduction of Spanish Merino mm. just did change something game. else. Right. Right. Suddenly, you could become rich as mm. a landowner in Australia. And these are these are people who um, they were. There's sort of an anarchism in Australia in the sense that you know the, a lot of these new newly moneyed people didn't come from the aristocracy. No. A lot. A lot of these people were freed convicts. Yes. And so uh, when they were sort of um, previously would have been thought to have only been bred for the the wheel and the gallows, as they would yeah. say, these these people have now been transported. They've served their time, and now have this opportunity to become you know wildly successful. Yes. And yet in that success, there's a paradox because. The, the, they see Australia as a land of wealth because of the opportunity that sheep provide. However, right. little do they know that the running of sheep on this soil ultimately... Mm. It's a temporary... It's a temporary of, thing. And right. we're realising this more and more in the 21st century. But, right. but even, you know, throughout the 20th century and what's being written and, and perhaps even in the 19th, you know, there is an awareness that the land changes once you introduce heavy livestock to it. Once hooves start compacting that soil... And etc. Once you start putting fences up and penning things in, especially, I mean, boss takes place before this, but especially with something like the introduction of barbed wire, right? Which is a post First World War innovation, so it doesn't really play into the novel. But these sorts of impacts are going to change the land, and there's a, there's a misapprehension that I think is best embodied in the novel by the character Ralph Angus. Mm. Um, uh, so I guess let's let's I'll, before we get into the character of Ralph Angus who's a young landowner who goes on this, goes on this expedition. Um, let's take a step back and introduce maybe some of the characters in this novel for those who haven't read Voss. Sure. And, um, and just break down this party and who's going in and why it's important that you have these different sort of characters going into the desert with this mad Prussian. So I'll, I'll, I suppose we'll start with the first major group which was who were introduced to us is that we have... Voss, who's the mad Prussian explorer, who's coming into the, uh, who's coming into the Australian desert with a mission from, who is being paid for by the merchant class in Australia. Yes. He has this a love interest, Laura, who he meets very briefly, only a handful of times. Maybe over the span of two weeks. Right. And and but over this time, they send letters when it's possible, and they end up being um, uh, engaged. Yeah. But, uh, obviously. Secretly, in a sort secret, of, in, in a way. And and a sort of against the. Um, the wishes of her family. She has a she has sort of a, a mirrored sort of destiny to Voss in that her her tribulations come from this sort of Victorian uh, class based system. The the marriage prospects. The yes. you know what are you what, you're getting a bit of, uh, getting a bit long in the tooth. You know this old yes. spinster. You're um, Charlotte Lucas of Pride and Prejudice. Right. Those who've read that story, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and yeah. so this is kind of going against the expectations of her very British class. 
She she says herself though that she doesn't think of Australia as her country. She just lives in it. Yes. She was born in England and she doesn't have this appreciation. I think in the very first chapter they talk about when Voss is first introduced, they talk about how they're scared to go out into the bush. They yes. they wouldn't go further than a picnic's ride. And this is an important moment. So in the first chapter, Voss arrives at the house of his patron Edmund Bonner, um, and everyone's out at church. Right. Except for Laura. Laura who Trevelyan, has a headache, of course. Who claims to have a headache. Right. But it, it tells us that you know. The, that she's actually come to become an atheist of right. her own will. She's decided that she cannot believe in this. As much as the people around her who, her, who are religious are well-meaning, it's Well, I think there's also, there's also like a cynicism in that. There's yes. this kind of... There's others who they'll later describe as well. They attend church for business purposes and yes. the social function, the social requirement. Yes, in, it's a status quo that they're upholding rather right. than a conviction that they're made. And so there's kind of this other class of people who can see through that and they go, well, if that's the case, I'd rather not pretend. And then we get introduced immediately to this very Nietzschean right. <laughs> character, right? right. So right. someone who in a similar way to maybe Nietzsche himself looks at the social requirement aspect of 19th century religion right. and denounces it. Right. Uh, however, there's an immediate and odd tension between these two characters because, um, so I mean, there's a, there's a slight awkwardness already in that there's a, there's a man in his middle age mm. meeting this young woman right. in a drawing room, it's an intimate setting. He's there early. He doesn't realise that others are at church. There's a strange obliviousness to that. Right. That and he, he didn't he, assume that they'd be on Sunday morning at church. Well, this is the thing. I think Voss is often very sort of caught up in his own world. And because he doesn't have these sort of concerns, he doesn't really expect others to. Yes. Um, so he's not, he, he didn't really think that someone would be at church because he would be. No. He, he sort of doesn't worry about, um, you know, he's unprepared for dinner. And, and the, uh, what does his patron say? Who, yes. needs to be, who needs to be prepared for a side of uh, roast beef? Yeah. Like, yeah. What, and what's boss, going on? Yeah, boss vehemently declines the offer to stay at the table. Right. Uh, and, and it's completely mysterious to his what's gentrified going? host that right. this man would, would need to somehow psych himself up to mentally brace himself for the act of sitting down and... For dinner. And yes, right. talking to people and eating a, a side of beef. Which I think is interesting and I think we'll get into it more, but the 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 food motif comes through so yes. strongly in yes. Boss. Constantly, the 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 the, 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 the colonial class that described as being um, dulled by mutton, yes. and, and and sort of the the eating of food is so constant in the in the experience of the colonials. What they're sort of a meal to meal, almost tribalistic yes. sort of way. They're, they're kind of consumed with these material uh, consumption. It's, yes. it's this consuming, yes. all-consuming sort of beast. Even later in the in the sort of final chapters, the, even the Aboriginals, after uh, killing, uh, massacring, basically this whole um, expedition force. All, yeah. yeah, all of the all of the horses. Yeah, they're, they're, they're described as being lulled by the uh, or, or, or dulled by the the food. They're yes, chewing yeah, the, the on, chewing, right, chewing on the uh, yeah. on the roasted horse and so on. Yeah. And yeah. it's like this, it, it, the food aspect is very, very interesting. It is, yeah. And it's, it's, it's brought up, as you're saying, right in that first chapter with right. this, this anti-dinner party that mm. Boss refuses to be a part of. Um, he also, he refuses food from a beggar when he walks into a town. Yeah. Or some sort of blow-in Yeah, there's a, there's a beggar fellow. eating bread who right. assumes Boss is of his own who looks, station. Who looks emaciated. Yeah. Boss is described as this very skinny, gaunt-looking character. Yes. Bony fingers, you know. He's, yes. very, he's very unhealthily thin. But he's um, he refuses food, you know, quite often. He's not, mm. he's, he's not um, interested in sort of satiating 
those sort of um, passions, I suppose. Yeah. Which gets later into this point where, uh, quite soon after that, when when it's described, he's he's meeting with Lemaitre, who's another Nietzschean character who Voss finds this affinity for. Yeah. So I suppose we're now moving into the expedition party itself. Right. So I think it's in the second or maybe the third chapter that we meet Voss's chosen compatriots, the right. people he wants to attend. Uh, this expedition with him so he's come back he's staying at this house in Sydney right um, he's walked back and forth the four miles from the uh, the Bonners place refused dinner but met Laura very importantly right uh, and he, he comes back to the house he's staying at and he meets uh, is it, I believe four characters here in right. the scene and you brought up uh, LeMessure and then Harry is another Harry character. Robart you also have uh, Paul Freeman right and Turner are the four sure. that he wants to have with him so, but bring us back to Le Mesure, because he's Well, a very it's interesting, character. because they, this group here is this very ragtag Wizard of Oz character. Very set. much, yeah. You could almost pair them, you know, he's your tin man, he's your lion. He's right, your... And, and so, I mean, to go back to that sort of analogy, you have Harry, who's this broad, uh, broad, strong man, but he's completely simple. Yeah, you. He's very unintelligent. He's, yeah. he's very, he, he's, he doesn't sort of, um, he doesn't pick up on when people are making fun of him. He doesn't pick up on... Um, the sort of uh, intellectual endeavors of the other group, but he but he's sort of admired for his his strength. He he can break chains and he can do all these sorts of things and he can carry Voss's chest, yes. which impresses him so much. Yes. And there's sort of this interesting thing where there's a, a dialectic set up between him and Lemesure. Lemesure, who's a very cynical intellectual character who writes poetry and doesn't expect and, and just wants to wallow in the gutters of Sydney and so on to mm. sort of. Um, I don't know, medicate whatever his sort of ails are. There's there's him who's sort of um, he's limited by Lemesure is limited by his intellect in a sense. Whereas Harry's limited by his intellect in the other sense. Yes, yes. So there's there's an there's sort of an Aristotelian dialectic going right. on where we have neither of these men display the virtue of intellect. Right. Lemesure is the excess. Right. Where he is again you mentioned another Nietzschean character. Right. Yeah, where he is he's too overwrought and then he becomes anxious and depressed mm. through his uh, sort of almost overworked poeticisms, you right. know what I mean? Well, that his his book, which he carries with him, is described as his whole life was kept in yes. his notebook. Uh, when some when one of the characters finds the notebook and goes through it, unbeknownst to uh, to Lemaitre, he says that it was like the uh, the scare it was like the um, the scary parts in the Bible or something like that. Yeah, it yes. was that the frightful parts were what yeah. he, and it was the poetry of a madman. Boss said, but it was he he sort of described it as. Uh, him saying that was almost like him being able to cope with what he was saying. Yeah. And that Voss sort of, he got it. Voss understands. He th- and, and, and when he uh, first meets Lemaitre, he says that, you know, I would be in a similar state to you if I didn't have this purpose. And that's why in some way it seems that he wants Lemaitre to come on the expedition. Now, interesting, interestingly, right. as almost immediately when they begin this expedition, they pass the last station. Right. Lemaitre becomes almost deathly ill. Right. The months point, in it, they were months. They were, yeah, and, and this is very early on when they right. really they haven't even moved out into the desert proper yet. Right. And Lemaitre has got boils. He's 
Oh no, sorry, that's Turner has ends of Sure, but, but Lemaitre gets a fever. Very, very and, ill. And Voss They're essentially stuck in has the cave. to, yeah, Voss essentially has to clean up after him, after his, you know, right, he has no control he, over his bowels, over right, his stomach. Right, and so he's, he's being, t- so Voss is taking care of, sort of in a way, his, his son really. He sees, yeah. he sees a younger version of himself in Lemaitre and he's taking care of him like a baby. Yeah, and it's, but I think there's an interesting element there where this is one of the members that Voss has expressly invited on this expedition. Right. Um, who was who was unprepared? Who was unprepared? Who didn't want to go? Who didn't want to go? And and, right. and prophetically pronounces that if he wanted to slit his own throat, he could do so more comfortably in the streets of Sydney, in the guise right. of Sydney. Right. I say prophetically because perhaps so much of this is prefigured. Yeah. And, and there, there's there's so many elements of this when the with the Aboriginal trackers, they would say they would say to Voss that um, you know his time to die will be once he finally accepts it. Yeah. There, there was so much pre uh, prefigurement in that. Which in, I throughout Voss. I remember. I, I think one of my favourite moments in another piece of colonial literature, Moby Dick, right. occurs when Queequeg, the tribal South Sea Harpooner, or right. Harpooner, gets sick with a fever and orders his coffin to be built. Mm. But once he sees his coffin, he's so pleased with it and he carves his you know, whole tattooed body into it right. that he decides he's better. Right. And his bosom friend, his, his uh, metaphorical husband, Ishmael, asks him how is it possible for him to decide to be better. And Queek, says, Queek, Queek, Queek tells him quite simply, I've decided I'm not ready to die. Right. Um, and there's that sort of, that, as you're saying, the Aboriginal trackers also bring up that sort of there's instinctive a, right. human wisdom. That there's so, an element to the will. So, so there's this rec- there is this recognition of the will. Uh, the Aboriginals understand this. Well, they have a concept of this in their own understanding within their context. Yes. But they don't. They they laugh at the the um, the white maggots in the end, the yes. drying up white maggots in the desert. Yeah. Who don't understand in the Australian context. They think they can. The the colonials think they can will against the great snake. Yeah. They think they can will against the spirits of the desert. Yes. But that but the Aboriginals know that you need to work in uh, in congruence with with the, these sort of forces. Yes. There's it's, a perfect. Not a willing against, it's a willing with. Perhaps. Right, and so I think there's a sort of uh, a common sort of thread there with uh, with the discussion on Seneca on the on the idea of ordering yourself towards this higher yes. order, ordering uh, yeah. this the logos. It's um you, you see it in um in the Tao Te Ching as well, which mm. is the working with the river, you know, going are uh, working in line with nature yes. as opposed to working against it. That's that's not the same as being dictated to and following. Yes, it's about al- having this sort of congruence and alignment in, in action. I did have a, a just one more point yeah, there on the um. There's this very very interesting point when they when Laura and and Voss depart, where Laura says that she'll pray for Voss. And Voss describes mm. this as these. Well, I'll, I'll I'll see your prayers as these uh, little bits of paper in the wind following me. Mm. And um, it's interesting later on that while it's still possible, they do send letters back yes, to town from stations. From, right. From and so there is the, there is this interesting sort of connection where there is so far into the bush where where messages can be sent, but there's a place beyond. But there's a very key moment when the letters are being sent and the Aboriginals decide to intercept and destroy the letters. Yeah, the Just, old man, the right. old man Dougal, who, one who, of the two Aboriginal trackers who attends Voss's party from the station at Gildra, right. is he, charged with bringing the letters back to Gildra Station to deliver them. And he decides to intercept these and destroy them. Yeah. Because, and, but what he, how does he describe this? He says that the, the white man uses the writing stick to write down all of the feelings they don't want to have, yes. all, the, all of the sadness and the tortures, all the pain they, that they all want the to pain, release from themselves. They write it on the paper and they send it away. And so Dougal, in this scene, it's very 
interesting thing because we talk about you mentioned the Seneca connection right. Seneca talks about that if you have this mindset where you are moving with what we might call like in a C.S. Lewis sense the towel right. the river the way um, if you moving with this you can see something like exile as simply the movement of what a people to a new place right or a it doesn't have to, to be place. so bad and so Dougal kind of embodies this mindset when he's on his way back to Jildra Station and meets a different group it's on his own it's on his own group of um, indigenous peoples that he meets right but he can converse with them and they want to know what he's carrying and he describes as you said mm. what he believes these letters to mean that they are a burden that the white man has released from himself with mm. a writing stick and then Dougal as, as sort of a ceremonial gesture in front of this tribe which is not his own tears up the letters and lets them throw into the wind mm. like they, lets them be thrown into the wind and then what so prefiguring do? these prayers that sort of that would, yeah we're right. to follow him but, but not only that but then Dougal doesn't go back to Jildra right. he moves on with this group of people and so he has this awareness as you're saying that Seneca mentions mm. that exile or that departure with a new people into a new place is simply a possibility that we can move in line with and Dougal recognises the moment in which which is maybe lost on the expedition because they don't see they have this synthesis where Dougal's able to join a new tribe and it's as if they're their own. And, yes. we'll, and we'll go, we'll go um, uh, uh, pick lilies in the same ponds and so on. Yes. But th this is what the sort of the colonials haven't yet uh, been and able they, to recognise. Yeah, and so it comes in a key moment, I think, with the uh, encounter that Paul Freeman has right. with the Indigenous people. But we should introduce him because that's one of the other four members. You wouldn't, do you want to go for Paul Freeman? What was your sort of analysis on that? So... Paul Freeman I find interesting. So we've, we've introduced to you Frank Lemaitre. We've introduced Harry Robards. Right. And we've mentioned that these are two people limited by an excess of intellect and a, and a limitation of intellect. Harry is the simple sort of brute, if you will, a very mm. well-meaning naive lad. Lemaitre is a cynic who eventually becomes a poet and a prophet in a sense. Right. Um, in a very beautiful transition, you know, when we first meet him, he's so cynical and bitter. Mm. But he sort of sheds that as he goes through the desert and becomes a lot more humble. Mm. But that cynicism transforms. He's the, described the as of, a disciple. Yes. And that, that kind of analysis, that level of perception he has, right. that at first makes him a cynic in the cities, right. turns him into a prophet in the desert. Right. Where he can even, even when he says, I'd rather slit my own throat here. Mm. Or he says, I'm sorry, he says, I'm not ready to yet slit my own throat. Right. That becomes a prophecy to his ultimate end when he when he, which I th there's a key point there not to distract from the more characters being introduced, but there's this point where there's there's um, an understanding and this acceptance that th that Voss is not this messiah character, which we yes. haven't got into, and well, and Laura's previously in her sickness, which I suppose we're getting ahead of ourselves, but. Laura has this sickness and cries out when the leeches are being removed that, you know, someone needs to protect my uh, Voss, who, is, who has now been humbled and who yes. will protect him except for God. Yes. But the, the interesting thing, and she says uh, just after that, that um, only once someone can, uh, once, only once someone knows they're not God, are they the closest thing to it? Yes. And there's sort of this ultimate sort of humbling, which is a very, very interesting sort of deep theological sort of statement. And I, and I want to go straight into that because right. I think to me, Paul Freeman, um, we're talking about Messiah figures. Right. Paul Freeman is recognized by every member of the party as being this Christian man. Right. Like a, a, and a, but conflicted because yes. he has this scientific background. He does. And, but, and yet, and in Patrick White's description of the character of Paul Freeman, he says that these are like two banks of a, of a river right. in Paul Freeman's mind. 
And even though the banks might drift apart, they generally follow the same course. Right. Um, there's no, there's in a weird way, even though there should be a conflict between a 19th century man of science, the naturalist, right, and the devout Christian, for some reason in Paul Freeman there isn't. Mm. And he has, and as I, as I mentioned, he's recognised by every member of the party as being just a, a true Christian. But to me, he reminds me very much of um, the character of Prince Mishkin in, in Dostoevsky's The Idiot, mm. as what you might call a false messiah figure, right. or, a, or, a, or a depleted or a one-sided messiah figure. Um, and for, for those who want to really examine this, I would wholeheartedly recommend The Idiot by Dostoevsky. But um, I think I'll, we were saying I'll, before, I think Patrick White is probably our Dostoevsky. Yeah, an Australian. Australia, yeah, he's the closest thing we have to a Russian existentialist right. writer, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the back of my copy of Voss, uh, I believe, says that uh, he, he, the only fitting rival of, of Patrick White is apparently Tolstoy, according to this uh, lady who reviewed it for the Sunday Times back right. in the 50s. So, there you go. There's some uh, Russian He's an Australian, yeah, an Australian, <laughs> perhaps Russian existentialist. Um, but I won't talk about the idiot because um, I don't want to... Uh, introduce too many strands in sure. this discussion, but I do want to bring up the fact that for those who have read it, you, and for those who will read or have read Voss, you may see in Paul from a similar strand in that he is a character who uh, embodies a the same sort of um, perhaps holy innocence that you'd expect in a Messiah figure, but without the holy awareness, perhaps um, right. that you need. So, for example. One of the most powerful moments in the Gospels describing uh, Christ is the moment where he enters the temple and sees the money changes and turns every table over and, and right. creates a whip out of cords and drives these merchants from the house of God. Mm. It's a very violent, it's a very right. shocking moment. Um, and it's a scandalous moment. And mm. it preempts, in some ways, preempts his death very immediately. Right. Um, but you can't imagine a character like Paul Freeman ever taking an action no, of that nature. There's a passive sort of nature to yes. him. And even in his death, there's sort of that sort of... Um, uh, Voss says not to, tells no one to react. He yes. says, don't, don't shoot anymore. Don't make anything. Who's, who's, who's killed? Yes. And, and then Paul Freeman is interesting because he also is an ornithologist. Right. So he's a, he studies the birds. Right. He studies, if you will, the spirits of the air. Right, he's this man who's who's whose mind, whose eyes up. Right, but he's also a scientist, so he yeah, dissects them and he stuffs them and he makes them these little um, little museum pieces. Right, right. so he's trying to t he's, he's he's got this um, such he's a strange dichotomy. Yeah, just right. such a strange dichotomy where he's he comes across as this Christian man, this man who's up in the clouds. Right. Um, but he's also this man who wants to dissect the spiritual. Right. The, the, he wants the to pin free, it down. To and he something. wants to pin it down. He wants to put it in a glass case. And the very interesting thing that I want to bring up is that his character's arc, um, you, you see the beginning of the end in the story in this critical moment where, as we've mentioned, Franklin Measure of the Cynic, the cynic uh, is very sick mm. throughout most of the story. And there's this critical moment where it, they've been reined in, they've been forced to sleep in caves for a, a long time, and they decided to, to finally make a break for it. Right. But this involves crossing a river that's swollen with floodwaters. And during this, um, Judd, who we'll get to as a character shortly, right. he, he mismanages the raft that they've created to float the supplies across, across and much of it sinks. They lose much of their equipment. Um, so Voss and Paul Freeman are the last across, and they're escorting the sick Frank LeMessurier. And it seems, on your first go through of this novel, it seems for all intents and purposes like this is the end of Frank Lemessurier. Right. He is barely able to sit up. 
He is so sick, you're sure he's just going to die of this fever. And here he is crossing a river swollen in floods. Right. There is no way he makes it through this. This is a this is a Red Sea moment where he is drowned in the tide, and yet he does. Everyone makes it through except the raft. Now, what was on that raft apart from their food supplies was the ornithological specimens. And he's directly challenged by Voss. And you're right. Voss directly comes up to Polferman after this and says... Your purpose is now gone. Yeah, you have no purpose here. Right. You've lost every specimen you've taken. Now we're entering the desert. He's challenging him. What kind of birds are you going to find out in the desert? What kind of spirits will you encounter? And it's like, why? what is the reason for you to progress any further? And now Voss isn't saying this perhaps because he wants Polferman to leave. Right. Because Voss seems to have a lot of uh, goodwill towards Polferman. Well, th- this is the thing. At this point, he's already Voss has already been established as a messiah figure. And they or a want-to-be messiah figure. A want-to-be yeah, messiah yeah. figure. Yeah. And they look to him as this um, the one who will save them and guide yes. them and so on. And this thing, it's it's a it's a it's it's built out of pride. It's not yes. it's not actual. Um, I just wanted to continue on that point. Well, yeah, I think it's just interesting because because shortly after this loss of the ornithological right. specimens, shortly after Lemaitre is released from his purpose of trying to capture the spiritual and, in, and incarnate it right. in this kind of modern rationalist scientific way. Um, he, he, he tells Voss at this time his story, around this time his story, of, of how he's kind of fled England because he has a, a deformed sister who is suicidal. Right. And, and he saved her from, from her attempted suicide, but then he flees to Australia. So there's this sort of cowardice in him. You realise mm. that as much he's as... Running he's running from a, something. Yeah, he's a meek character. He seems Christ-like. But then you realise he's actually not capable of saving someone. Mm. Because even though he... He had the wherewithal to cease his sister's bleeding when she deliberately cut her, her, her wrists. Right. He cannot stay, he cannot bear to stay and be with her and make sure it doesn't happen again. Right. He would uh, rather abdicate. He would rather abdicate. And then he goes off to this desert to pursue this other quest. Um, and so shortly after this, we find out not only has he lost his purpose, the specimens are gone, we find out that he is on the run from actually stepping into a truly uh, Christ-like role. Right. That he has his big opportunity. Because um, there's this continual theme in the novel of there's, there's sort of this unease in the party because things go missing. Right. And it's not always clear why. And there's this hint that it could be Voss himself. Voss sleepwalks. Right. And only certain of the party know that he does. And, th- and this is the thing. These aren't trivial matters. There's one compass. There's only one compass. Right. Yes. And, so, and, and, and Voss threatens various times prior to that. What's going to happen when the party splits up? Yeah, because... Who's going to get what? Yes, there's Voss a- is teasing. He's right. kind of tempting them. Right. Like, like Satan in the desert, perhaps. Um, absolutely. Leave me. If you will, I am the Messiah here. If you split up from me, where will the compass go? Where will that, you know, where will right. direction come from? Come from, right. yeah. Um, so, so there's this moment where some pieces go missing. They're right in the desert now, and they've been followed for some days by a party of Aboriginals. Right. And immediately, the members of the party who who are sort of opposed to Voss, these members who we haven't yet introduced in this podcast, but who yep. are the, sort of the outsiders to the party. Uh, they want to blame the Aboriginals around them, and Voss tries to dissuade them. And eventually he settles on Paul Freeman, mm. the ornithologist, going out and trying to settle matters, because he says he's unbiased, he's a meek right. man, this will be appropriate. Paul Freeman goes out, and in his attempt to negotiate, is speared. Um, Which is this betrayal. Yeah. But it's not met with aggression, as in Voss wants to de-escalate the situation. Yeah, even though... He doesn't want to actually... Um, 
sort of characteristically exact revenge or, no. or sort of come to a, um, a a similar cost you know as to what was taken yes they, they wants to no more shooting don't yes. make this any worse yeah and 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 he, in his death he sort of rides on the ground and he, he calls out and so on but it's almost like as if his death is not going to be met with any it's it's pointless in a sense it yes. was truly pointless yeah yeah in the same way that perhaps um yeah i mean there's, there's this there's this revelation in that moment right that he wasn't a mediator right that Paulfin was unable to be a mediator and his death as you're saying can't actually achieve something. Right. It's this ultimate kind of scandalous his, his, moment. His sacrifice was truly not worth it. it no, did, it didn't achieve anything. Yes, it wasn't propitiatory. It didn't no. have. It didn't have um, sort of power to it. No, it, w- it was. It was like the animals that they were. You know, the the goats that would drown or whatever. It was these. It meant nothing. Yes, and that was sort of, I think, a tragic moment. Yeah. So then the fourth character that Voss wants on the expedition is Turner. Right. Turner is a drunk. That is all that his character is, right. essentially. I don't think there's any great development insofar as, apart from that we know he's an alcoholic, uh, once he enters the desert and that, that aspect of his character is lost to him, he then kind of attaches himself leech-like onto various other characters in an attempt to sort of gain a friend. Mm. Um, and Turner ultimately latches onto the young man, Ralph Angus. He, the, so he's ultimately dependent, I yes. think is the thing, and that he, he has no independence to him. No. So before, while, while in the streets of Newcastle or Sydney or wherever, he was able to lie, you know, to rest on the drink, on the grog that was available. Yes. Now, now stripped of that, what, what can he leech upon? What yes. can he be dependent upon? Yes. And that he finds these characters. And originally perhaps it's Voss, because Voss invites him. Right. But... Which is curious, why? Yeah. To what end? And so, it's, is is it the case that Voss is trying to save these people from themselves? Are there's, they actually useful? There's an useful? implication, perhaps, that the people that Voss has chosen to come with him, Lemezra, Paul Freeman, right. Harry, and Turner, they have something to gain. They from have the something desert. to gain from the desert. Yeah. Paul Freeman is this false Christ figure right. who maybe doesn't even know it yet. Maybe yeah. he thinks of himself as too good a Christian, and in, in a humble way, not in right. a proud way, but he's too good of a Christian. Right to be anything but a Christ figure, and yet the revelation is that ultimately he's not. And Voss exposes that when Voss tells him, when Voss hears the story of him running away from his sister, mm. and Voss explains to him, you're here in the desert to escape that. Right. That doesn't come from Paul Freeman himself, that comes from Voss perhaps psychoanalyzing that right. from him. And, and I suppose that psychoanalysis is that as they get deeper into the as they get deeper into the desert it does become sort of uh, there's this sort of spooky element and yes. it gets dreamier it gets more confused yes. and they and there is this sort of psychic element that comes in this dream time element that yes. goes in as they go further on I, I sort of perceive that as almost as if as, as they become more purified through the desert transition they have access to this oh. other realm they have the, yes. the, whatever the aerial elements are the, these, these psychic sort of moments come from that that's the sort of interpretation I gather and I think and we can get this shortly afterwards but Laura goes through a similar journey herself that's part of the the drive of the novel is that she and Voss once they both enter this this last kind of trial of suffering their dreams become shared and, and become more and more 
and link, this and we Laura, see where right. the overlaps occur between these visions that they both have one another. And this is the thing: Laura's journey does mirror that of Voss's in yes. that in that Victorian context. Yes. she adopts she adopts a baby um, of her her servant's illegitimate child. Yeah, it's called a Mercy. Uh, it's, 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 it's kind of a scandalous moment where this servant her, has a bastard, right? And the society daughter, this adopted girl of these respectable new aristocrats, bourgeois, right? Merchants, she she takes on this child as her own, and this is their concern. These are her aunt and uncle. These aren't even her parents, yes. who have except who have brought her up as a daughter. So there's a, there's a, there's a level of generosity that they've extended. They hope to reciprocate. And it. this is the thing. There's this element of well, why why wouldn't you just do as we asked? You why know, wouldn't you? We've yeah, taken you on as a, we've taken baby, you on yeah. as a daughter. Yeah. You know why? You know how much really could you? Expect? And they can't see perhaps that her action is the ultimate expression of gratitude, insofar as she is taking on another unwanted child right as much as she was an unwanted child Abs and this is right she this extends is, uh, the same mercy to this girl mercy right of course and, um, and but the interesting thing is that the aunt and uncle try to play this off to they find another barren woman who has property in the Hunter Valley oh in uh, who has the greatest Penrith in Penrith yeah. has the greatest cattle herd in Penrith yes and they say but this poor barren woman won't you extend mercy to her yes and mercy <laughs> to the name of the, the child baby. yeah 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 so it's interesting how they all sort of play to it where, where it's advantageous, which yes. I think is that sort of cynical element that Laura and Voss catch on, as in they know it's not sincere. They know that the kind of social Christianity of the age... What's the point here? It's because yes. my marriage prospects will be a lot better. Yeah, That's if I release this child from me, then I might find a man who will, who will be and, willing to... And, she, yeah. and the, true, the true daughter of the Bonners already has this set up. She's marrying... From the in, start of the novel, yeah. From we the know very that she's engaged. She's engaged to a soldier. Belle Bonner is married to Tom Radcliffe, Radcliffe, the handsome soldier who becomes a landed gentry. And But Radcliffe, even he, resents this in that he has to resign his commission. Yes. He, does, he doesn't really want to be part of this. Okay, I'm going to be a pastoralist in the Hunter Valley. Yes. Okay, that's where we're going to settle. I'm giving up my station and so on to play into this... It's almost, yeah, it's almost as though that now that he his his commission has earned him a pretty he was wife. happy to ha he was happy to have her while the commitment wasn't there. Yes, now that exactly. this is required, he knows that the commission brings him the sort of status that lets him attain a pretty wife. And once right. he has the pretty wife, he regrets having to give up the commission. Right, it's this is this irony inherent. And I think irony is a big theme in the Absolutely. novel. Um, especially with the characters, the last two that we haven't got to of the expedition, we have Judd and Ralph Angus. Right. So so there's a there's an extreme irony in these Absolutely. two characters. So Voss does not want them on the expedition. Right. They are brought about because his patrons, Mr. Bonner and Mr. Sanderson, uh, demand that he He's takes them. He's compelled. And and this is the interesting in that Voss doesn't take compulsion lightly. No. He he is this sort of free spirit that if he's told to do something, he really does not want to do it. Yes. And so he takes them very, very begrudgingly as a, a convict, an ex-convict. Yes. This is the interesting thing about... So Judd is, a, is an emancipist. Right. He has served his term. He has been given land. Right. And now he is slowly, by the sweat of his brow, by, the, by, the, by his daily breaking back, he is right. bit by bit lifting him and his family to a new station. Right. Meanwhile, you have Ralph Angus. Right. He's a he's a man from from overseas who's he's come the land. To the land. He's he's come to yeah become <laughs> a part of this land simply by possession, simply right. by looking at it and saying I want that plot. It right. is now mine, and I will run my cattle on it. I will, my servants will work. And this for me was on the it. colonial system. If you had the money to stock the land, the land was yours. Yes. This was very distinct from the emancipated convicts who were given land and needed to work it from the ground up. Yes, with simply. Usually, what they had—a wife and sons, if they even had that—right—and and, and, um, 
and so starting these, from de very different places. And there's such immediately, these characters introduced to the expedition, right. and there's tension between them right away. Right. Ralph Angus does not want to be seen. Part of the reason Ralph Angus is an awkward character in the expedition is because he is now being dragged to the level. Right. He, sort, he sort of knows that by being invited on the expedition, he is now on the same status, he's in the same like, level of the hierarchy right. as a foreign madman, right. as this quaint ornithologist, and worst of all, a drunkard, an idiot, a poet, <laughs> and a convict, you right. know what I mean? Like there's, there's this knowledge that he's meant to be the aristocracy, right. and none of his companions are, are at, this level. at this level. Now what's the irony with Ralph Angus, who become his best friends, who becomes his leader, who, who becomes his supplicant? Right. Ultimately, Who when the party the does split up, right. is Ralph Angus places himself under the leadership of, the, of Judd, the right. convict. And worse than that, his dependent, his best friend at this time, is the right. drunkard, Turner, who is now leached onto this society gentleman. Right. And they have this, this almost obscene friendship right. of purely deriding those around them. Right. And Ralph Angus hates the fact that Turner is simply there or at his side all the times bemoaning his station but Ralph right. Angus knows that he sees it the same way he's just too cowardly to admit, to admit it right it's such a fascinating point and, and Voss catches on very this is where I suppose as soon as the tension is sort of made clear mm. Voss is hinting at when the party splits up when's this going to happen yes you, and, you know and, there's only one company and he's teasing Judd and Judd, Judd is an honourable man well the interesting thing is that Judd introduces himself as a practical man Yes. As in, he doesn't have much of learning, but he has... He has. The, he can fix things. He can, he fix can carry things. things. Practical. He can so, He can create solutions <laughs> when they when problems arise. Right. And so he... But he identifies, I think, a lot of times in Voss as sort of um, impracticality. Voss wants the problem, not yeah, the absolutely. solution quite often. Often, the, It's often the case that Voss will create problems to and, see how they will sort and, of pan out. And this is most evident when Look Voss... Look at the... What about the dog? The, the yes. dog, for example, is, a, is an interesting one where they say, well, we can feed the dog out of our own Yes, yeah, the last dog that survives with your party. And, right. and Voss is very attached to this dog. It's, right. it's this beautiful animal. Right. Who and had never looked healthier yes. since it had escaped the slums of where it was at. Yeah. In the bush, the, the dog is able to, I don't know, it's probably eating birds and so it, on. Is, yes. Look, we'll take the, look at the shiny coat of the dog. So this is this is not a, a raggedy animal like no. the horses, which, which the, the sort of honourable thing would be to put these poor creatures yeah. down and the goats and the mules likewise but the dog is like this emblem of of success like it's the it's the colonial spirit that's going forth and becoming stronger through the desert and Voss is attached to the animal Voss is sort of spiritually linked to it right and yet the moment comes when they're running low on supplies and Voss immediately makes the executive decision as you say he creates the problem right. he says who's going to feed the dog right. and all the men say we'll take half rations so the dog continues with right. us Voss without even saying a word to them right. gets off his horse takes a pistol, walks the dog into the bush, and puts a bullet into it. Right. He ends it right there. He ends it. And in, in the and there's a, a sense in which it, it calls back to the original discussion with Lemaitre, where you, you need to break yourself before you can make yourself. Yes. He, Voss needs to kill more and more parts of himself. He needs to, as you said before, he needs to reduce the substance of himself more and more to get Which down to the, to the bones. Which is a theme of going into the desert. It's a theme in Seneca. Right. It's a theme in the desert fathers of the early church. It's right. a theme in Voss. You go into the desert and you peel back. I right. think the most obvious moment of this in the novel is when they meet the boar, the buffoon. Mm, right. 
Brennan of, of Jildra, right? <laughs> the guy who owns Jildra Station, he's by himself, he's propping up his table leg with a copy of Homer. Right. right? He's, what does that say? The... Eminently practical. <laughs> yes, right? He's on the grog permanently, just drinks rum, right? And and he tells Voss when Voss comes to his station, this desert will peel you back like the layers of an onion right. until there's just the core of the man. Right. He, he knows this is, and he's not... He's not a saint in any stretch of the imagination. No, he he's just drunkard, he, he's almost like this he, guy, this guardian at the he, he's sort of the last post before you get deeper. He's into the angel the Congo. with a flaming sword at the edge of Eden, perhaps, you know. Oh, and it sort of recalls these those sort of motifs. I'm thinking also of the heart of darkness. Yes. And the, this tra- this traverse yeah. down, there's multiple times where they describe the party going deeper into hell. Yes. And so there's that Dante's I mean, Inferno element to this. The torches change. There's a very early part, um, which he actually again describes to Lemaitre saying about the inhuman tortures you'll experience but that the genius of man that you'll find that is is sort of clouded by the daily realities Mm. only if these things are stripped away can the genius of man be found but first you must go through inhuman tortures first you must be starved first you must go through all these sufferings and I want to sing the praise of Voss a little bit here now just to pause this discussion which I am thoroughly enjoying and I hope the listeners are too but when we, when I came to prepare for this, I wanted to see if there were any other discussions of Voss to be found, lectures that had been right. uploaded, uh, keynote speeches from from our only Nobel Prize from winning... Australia's <laughs> only Nobel Prize winning author, whose whose novels have existed for some almost eighty years now. Right. So surely there'd be a wealth and abundance of. And it's lo and behold, I find that there's almost nothing. I mean, he's right. not even taught in our universities right. or, or in our high schools, as you would you would think. They they. Right. Um, they teach the romantics, they teach Dune by Frank Herbert, you know, sure. all very, very fine and good, you know what I mean? But if you want a desert novel, right, right why We've Dune when we have Voss? And this um, is, we have, we have it, but it's not, I, I wonder if it's because it's sort of a bit uneasy. Well, I want to bring it doesn't, this up. It doesn't settle very well. No, it doesn't. But I want to do, I do want to bring this up and I want to, I want people to, I want people to read Voss and here's the reason, is that um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, He's the author of the very famous novel, The Scarlet Letter. Sure. He's uh, an American colonial who reinterpreted lots of stories from the Bible and the Greek mythologies into a sort of this, this new context. He was, he, was a, he was an emblem of that classical spirit in the, in the United States, trying to write these, these novels that told the colonial experience and spirit. Um, but was also deeply in love with the classical tradition. Right. And he was very good friends with uh, Herman Melville. Mm. In fact, he's largely responsible for the creation of Moby Dick because before Melville spent time with Hawthorne, he'd never read Shakespeare. Right, right. <laughs> so ironically, uh, perhaps... These like universal directly, themes were just beamed into it. Yeah, through literally. The he, he spent time with him and all of a sudden there they are. But now Hawthorne had this interesting point, which is that in colonial literature, the bleak... And I'm paraphrasing this quote here, but he, he, he said that in colonial literature, the bleakness is all that's available and apparent. It mm. has to be the it has to be the starkness, mm. the bleakness that carries all forward. Because unlike, for example, your Jane Austen or your Dostoevsky, right. the colonial life does not have these these great social networks, these great social spheres and right. and systems in which the, the characters can navigate. Right. You think about um, if you, if you step back from some of the great works of European fiction, you step back from a Jane Austen or a, or a Dostoevsky novel, right. or, or, or from certain of the French novelists too, it can almost seem ludicrous, the sorts of struggles the characters are going through. Right, it's so, the, 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 I think the thing is that the ornamentation of it all, 
seems so absurd. Yes. I mean, think about, again, I'll bring it up again, The Idiot by Dostoevsky. Right. Purely society. It's right. this prince who's got a, a, a mental illness of some kind trying to enter society. Which, if you ask Schopenhauer, that's the perfect novel. The, yeah. the perfect novel concerns themselves. The perfect novel is three people in a room talking. Yes. Is, is this idea. Very is... much, again, the, the case of something like Pride and Prejudice. Right. One of the greatest novels of the English language. It is three people in a room talking the sure. whole way through. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but you can't do that. You can't do that in America or Australia in the 18th, 19th That's not where the century. story is. And so you get right. works like Moby Dick, right. which are just mythologies. Right. Right? And right. you get works like Voss. Voss has been called... So, so Moby Dick is the great American novel. Sure. Voss has been called the great Australian novel. Right. Because it wants to be the same thing. It wants to be mythology. But this is where I want to really just sing the praise of Voss. Right. Is Voss is also a society novel. The, and it is, is both. And it is both brilliantly. The, it I is think, a good mythology and it's right. a good society novel. And they both those strands intersect. And if you haven't read it... And I think that's why the dreamlike state had to be there. The dream time element, I think, is unique to the Australian context. Yes. Without that element, there wouldn't be this bridge. It would be sort of like the two, two rivers tracks that would two never parallel meet. Tracks, yes. Th there are these, there are these uh, various meetings of the ashes. This, this is the Murray Darling. This is the this is the Murray Darling. Right, the two this, rivers. This is where that, the rivers come, come together yeah. to go out to the sea. Yes. I think without that element, with with this sort of um, the spiritual element that exists within the desert context, yes. you couldn't you couldn't make this work. So Voss That's wants what's so to, special. Voss wants to escape society so what does he do right. he he goes out into the desert he removes himself from these trappings and he and he tries to he tries to which sanctify is interesting which is interesting in, a, in, a in that way. there's another there's another sort of um thing there's another sort of story here which is the um the Lord, Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Which is where the children are are, are supposedly innocent are, yes. sent, are off on the desert island. And what do they do but recreate the societies that they left? Yes. There's there's World War Three or whatever's going on in the outside world. Yeah. These incredible inhumanities and, and conflict only for the same things to occur on the island. Yeah. They will create tradition. They will create social hierarchy. They'll create law. They'll break law. They'll have they'll have warfare. They'll have rituals. They'll have of, ritual. sacrifice. Yeah. All of these things will occur, and I think there's a similar aspect in that. Sure, Voss has escaped all of the uh, niceties of uh, you know of, of colonial life, but Man, he's sort of established his, another base. He in has the because what I think the moment this becomes most clear is the moment we brought up several times, in which Voss turns to Judd and he says, "When the party splits up, who will take the comfort, compass?" Right, right. Voss loves society. Voss loves social poison and etiquette, and he is playing with his compatriots. It's very cynical. He will use these, and right. it's the sort of thing that you'd, you'd see in a drawing room speech. I can imagine, you know, Lady Catherine <laughs> de Burr saying to Mr. Darcy and Jane Austen, right. if you marry this, this lower-class woman, where will, where will my fortune go? You know, right. It's the same sort of social poison, right. but in an existential crisis of life and death. If you don't have this compass, you will get lost, you will, you will, you will die. Right. Easily. Right. And so, but in this, he sets himself up as the lawgiver. He is yes. the person who has, who holds the compass. He is the one. The speaking cone, with, like in Lord of the, the Flies. Right, yeah. he is the speaking cone, and that's the thing. There's, and uh, in Lord of the Flies, there is a division where there's the, the groups will separate. Yes. The groups have to separate here because there is a fundamental distinction. Yes. But the thing is that Voss group, Voss's group, that is supposedly the one led by the Messiah, is the one that all of them die. They all die, and then yet Judd's party, Judd survives. The eminently practical Judd. The eminently practical Judd 
And interestingly, John doesn't have the same will that Voss does. He also doesn't have a lot of criticism in the end. No. Uh, so 20, is it 20 years later or, or decades about later? So, so, so much. They erect, yeah. a, they erect a, so the, you know, the, it was a tragic expedition that did, was not successful. Yeah. But later they erect a statue in Sydney, is it? Of, um, of Voss. Of Voss. And uh, Laura's there, and so is Judd. And he has nothing bad to say. No. Of course, his story has changed many times. Yeah, he doesn't quite remember. For example, he believes that Voss died the death of Holfreeman at some point. But for how how sort of um, toxic the the the, the relationship, was, the relationship yeah. was at the time. In memory, he's sort of he's happy to go along with the hero element. He's I, happy to mythologize. I think this is the the beautiful moment. If we've talked about Seneca going into exile right. and and sort of sanctifying himself, right? Of, of of letting himself purify his his way of engaging with the world. We see Simon the Stylite, Simeon, sorry, Saint Simeon right. the Stylite, going to the desert and and sanctifying. And we see Voss trying to do the same. Yep. Um, and Voss fails because he wants to be a messiah. Right. He doesn't want to encounter the messiah. And this is and this is the sort of key moment I think is all of the scene uh, uh, surrounding the death of Lemaitre. Yes. In that he finally says to um, he finally says to Voss, "So is there no hope?" Yeah. And Voss says, "There is not. I'm. It's like, so you are withdraw. Are you are. So you withdraw." He says, "No, I'm withdrawn." Yes. And so there is no hope remaining. And Voss says, uh, yeah, he sa- uh, Lemaitre says, is there any hope remaining? And Voss says, you'll have to find the hope yourself. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yes. You'll have, to, you'll have to work it out, which is all any man can do. Yes. In, in, there's a sense in which hope can't be given to you. Yes. You, this entire journey, you've been generating yourself. My, my component in this is now gone. Yes. It's up to you now, which I, for Lemaitre, who was briefly saying before, there's, there's another point about... Uh, when they're discussing if you knew the day of your death, if you knew the day you were going to be executed or die or whatever, yes. would you take that? What would you have for your last meal? Yeah. Lemaitre says he wouldn't have anything. Yes. I want to have. I want to. I don't want to be dulled by food again. Again, I want the food f- metaphor. I yeah. want to feel the the last fly on my skin and the last beat of my conscience as it tell as it reveals a secret to me yes. in my final moments, and that I'm not afraid of death. The death, all the I mean, death is, is this. The measure is not because he invites it. He invites the death. He fulfills his prophecy and he slits his throat. They the describe it as it, he was the man who, who who let the spirit out of his own body. But yeah, he's respected by the Aboriginal people because, who kidnapped them at the time, who right. held them hostage, because they say that this white maggot has seen the the flow of the river. Right, and it's and it's time to go. And, and it's, there's a sort of distinction there is that even with their dead bodies, so Harry. Who um who dies sleeping or, or what happened? Nobody. Yes. I, I'm not sure. Exactly. Voss doesn't know what happens. He doesn't to know him. what happens. He he, Harry just, goes. he calls he calls out to him and he doesn't respond. Yeah. Oh, Harry must have died. When the Aboriginals come and find the body, Harry's body is bloated. He's, a, he's like a large woman. Yeah. Versus Lemaitre's is the one that's dried out. He's, and they yeah, get, but they get thrown into the same ditch. Yes. And they say, well, that, the white maggots will breed together. Yeah. But it's an interesting. Lemaitre doesn't fear death, and he says multiple times, sort of referring to this the the great snake metaphor or this vision that the um that it's with death comes creation mm, and mm. Voss says but what about the damned souls yeah he says but even in the most ch- it's through the char that the gold comes out yes so i think he sort of sees that through his torches and damnations yeah. and so on that that's where the the gold will come out that's what he, yeah. he previously saw his book as but in his death he destroys the book of his poetry yes he's there's a sort of I think that's his sort of um, humiliation 
that's his coming to humility is in the destruction of the book that, yes. that wasn't the whole I world. mean the save the, sa- the salvation of the world wasn't in his poetry that was ripped from the heart yeah I mean I, I'm just calling to mind Gerard Milley Hopkins right the great Catholic priest uh, poet and who destroyed so many of his own poems on becoming a, a priest right and, and later like just that slim fragment have been recovered by his good friend um, I can't remember the name anymore but it's that interesting but that, that moment yeah of right. wanting to be religiously free that self-destruction of, of sort of death becoming the creative at moment right um, the idea of destroying I mean going back to Google. but there's a, there's a there's a stoic moment there for La Mesura yes in that there is no hope time to fall on my sword yes he could have I think that would have been a more tragic fate had he done this lying in the you know had he sort of sort of um just wasted away in the slums in the gutter of Sydney yes in, you know to grog and to song. never write a single poem to never write a single poem to yes. never traversed into the desert yes. at least here he made it yes and you know he was surrounded in the end and there was no hope but he got this far yes there was some, and he gained from it I think there's, there's he these, had a purpose in the end strange endings in which certain characters especially those who remain with Voss right I think Paul Freeman's the beginning of the end but but the right. characters who remain with Voss are Harry and La Mesura right. and there's sort of this strange way in which their stories end in it in oh, that's the other point not. is that Voss says so what is to become of us well, I leave it up to God mm. and, the, and it, it's directly said this is the moment that the worshipper realised he was not the Messiah yes that this was he, but he said but this was he knew that this was the, uh, the king who would resign yeah everyone knew this was going to happen yeah but they hoped that it wouldn't yeah now this is over that's the end of the story so we have all these endings in the desert. We have Angus and Turner try and follow Judd back to civilization. They they just simply die of thirst. Right. They don't have the sort of humility that Judd has just to keep going. Right. You have the Voss's party all either slain by the Aboriginals that they encounter or right. simply fall away from natural causes. Right. I mean Voss's own end is to have his his, his head, head cut off, cut off. By, the same, by the pocket knife he gave the young boy yes, the early young on boy, yeah. to, to win him over to as win a friend. Him over. Because Voss wants to be the master of men. And the, but the interesting and in thing is that... this moment where he releases his mastery of men... He, do, when, he, accept, he accepts death as, as the other tracker had said. Yes. He would only die when that's occurred. Yes. And so there, there is this sort of martyr's death where he's decapitated. Yeah. The interesting thing though as well is that the young boy Jackie, mm. he... Um, this was almost like a, a coming of age, a right. Yes. That he was slaying a beast, like a great beast. Yeah. He was slaying a giant and sort of putting he's an end. He's become a giant killer. But then he, he's he's become a gi- he goes mad from that. Absolutely. He, he sort of realised that it, perhaps it wasn't a god. The old, men, through, the old but... men didn't want to do it. Yeah. But they said, it's time for you to do it, boy. But they didn't want to do it. No, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this end that all these characters have on the expedition. Um, and yet Judd remains. Right. And so we talk about these two rivers that meet and twine, the social and the, the mythic, um, which makes this not just a great colonial novel, but, but somehow one that blends the European style of the society. Laura Trevelyan adopting this child against the social mores and the sort of um, prudishness of the Victorian society and her, her continual martyrdom it, as the myth build up around her that this was her bastard that was born of Voss right. that she and Voss had some affair this is you know decades later people start telling this story about her that she and right. Voss had an affair this is her bastard born of Voss right. and, and people have forgotten that this was adopted out of some act of Christian charity right um, so, so Laura ends up kind of being saved 
Laura in some ways ends up because she decides to pray for Voss's salvation, right. does encounter some sort of salvation of her own. She she adopts this true path of a sort of Christ-like self-sacrifice, loses any reputation, any chance of sort of social status in the Victorian context, mm. but becomes a a leader. She runs it, ends up running a school for girls, right? And, and sort of becomes this. She finds a purpose. Theme. Yes, she finds this purpose, and so um, and that's through right. Voss, through the, right. her decision to pray for Voss's salvation. And I think that the encounter with Voss was a turning point for her in sort of however it would have turned out. Again, that first moment they meet, neither of them are at church, right? And the, and this is the thing in that Voss had revealed that there were more pathways through the desert. Yes, there were more. There were other ways you could cut. You didn't have to go these sort of standard routes. Yes, that these that there were these were sort of that the social conventions were really illusions and mirages. I think. In a certain sense. And so the second character who I believe as the story goes on becomes sort of sanctified, becomes saint-like, is right. Judd. Right. Now you bring up Judd comes back and 20 years later he has no, not, a, not a bad word to say about Voss. He's happy to mythologize. Yes. So he's happy to make Voss more of a saint than Voss was. Right. And, and it, not for a minute do you believe it's Voss, uh, because Judd, the, the convict who made it back and lost everything, not for a minute do you believe it's because he is mad or because he's demented or because he doesn't care enough. Right. It's simply that he's gone out and he's he was the only person who realized perhaps in the end there's a sense I think in which he was the only person who discovered Australia. Which again is such a, a poignant uh, motif of the book to carry on is that the, the convict right. who who tried to lead these He was compelled there. He did not come via force of will. Yeah. Were, were, it up to, were it up to him, he probably never would have chosen to be here yeah. in Australia, let yeah. alone go on these. Adventures. And it's not even clear for what crime he was sent. It's never right. told to you in the book. Right. And so, so yeah, there's this, there's this beautiful ending in the book where Jard meets Laura. Right. These two very saintly characters. And they're both compelled to be at the unveiling of this statue for Voss. Right. Laura does not particularly want to go. Right. Jard is simply there because he has to be. He's the last surviving member of the expedition who they found living with a tribe of Aboriginals 20 years on. Right. So neither of them have any will necessarily to be there and commemorate Voss, and yet they do. Which is that they, it's, it's, there's a sense in which they, they both owe a debt. You know, Laura's fever breaks only with the death of Voss. Yes, Laura, There is a connection there. And Laura goes on to fully give herself into this self-sacrificial life and Judd too. So there's a sense in which Voss's sacrifice did have meaning. Yes. He, he achieved something and, and, and through his sacrifice, which is in the sense he, Voss was sort of begging to be a martyr yes. through a lot of this, but he was also martyring others along the way. In the end though, there was something that came about through his death. Yeah, there is Judd and there is Laura. Right. And they meet once and never again. Right. My, like Voss, really. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Um, it's a poignant story. Right. I want people to read Voss. <laughs> <laughs> Get on it. Get on it, please, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how much more we can say. I think you've got to... It, it's an interesting thing, the style as well, I suppose, is a last It's a comment. very Baroque. It's, it's one that you can't um, pick up for five minutes and put back down. You need, no. to, you need to get in it and, and sort of be uh, enraptured by it. Yes. To get to understand what's I going on. I found that there are a lot of if nots in there. Right. I thought there was a lot of flesh. <laughs> sure. There are a lot of lilies. Right. I would say that, that Voss was 
goods like the glitter of sand, if not great, right. like the flesh of lilies. Right. <laughs> to kind of Fantastic. make a metaphor out of a Frankenstein's metaphor right. out of the, the phrase the kind of Baroque language of the book. It's very right. poetic. It right. reminds me of um uh, this is a strange question, but another Australian, Nick Cave. Oh, sure. uh, his his novel sure. And the Ass or the Angel right. has such a similar uh, sort of beautiful poetic language that can at times be very baroque but you never lose track of what's going on well it's interesting I think in the end Boss accepts that there is an interventionist God um, yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. on that Nick Cave on the, on the ass <laughs> on the angel yeah 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 um I don't know if I'd recommend Nick Cave in the same way wholeheartedly as I do Voss because it's, it's disturbing in a less redemptive way. Sure. But I sure. suppose if you've listened to his songwriting, you perhaps already <laughs> you might, might get pick up on that. You might get something yeah, out yeah. of it. And I haven't read his other novels. I've only read his first. <laughs> so I don't know, but I think they probably all follow a similar suit. Look, it's probably not the Nobel Prize level uh, status, but while we have something that is, get on it. Yeah, get on Voss. If you want an Australian author who will uh, just... Help it's you worth the time. It's yeah, worth the effort. I think help you fall in love with this nation in a different way, on so many different levels. Right. Um, and and also make you mournful. I think the book does make you mournful. The attitudes between uh, the colonial gentry and the convict, between the between the European and the indigenous. Um, there's all right. these levels of relationship which which can be mournful. I think my sort of conclusion from this is that I don't. I think even now, I don't think Australia has been discovered yet. No, I think that's. Not. I think that's the sort of the takeaway. I think I'm hesitant in some ways. Like I, I, I see why people would call this a great Australian novel, but in some ways, I'm hesitant to say that it is. Not yet. No, I don't think we have. We've had one yet. Right. Where, I mean, when when it's yet to be written. When Moby Dick was was written, that part of America, the the Boston, Massachusetts area, right. that had been settled for almost 300 years. Right. When Voss was written, that area had barely been settled for 200. Right. So I think I think we're a century off, maybe from <laughs> from from <laughs> our a, greatest. A while to, I think there's a few hundred years before we start getting our Aeneids and our Odysseys and our Moby Dicks. Uh, it gives us plenty of time to read what we have. But this is the mythology yeah. that yeah that right. I think will create it. Right. Um, read read Voss and Voss. and maybe you, dear listener, if you are an Australian listener, will be the next. We'll be the person. You'll be our Homer. You know. And maybe this won't end up being the uh, support for a table leg. Yes. Hopefully not. Yeah. Not in some station out in the in the Armadale area. You know, propped under a under a wobbly table. Right. Holding a rum glass steady. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, you you may have noticed the change of scenery. I, I mean, I've enjoyed every moment of discussion we've had. It was a good Both one. here and the previous one, uh, which hopefully will tie in together well. And I just hope that everyone else has, because, uh, I mean, from here, I'm only more and more excited. The next two quarters of this magazine, I am, I'm already buzzing. Right, right. There's <laughs> a lot I, more to come. Yeah, and I've been getting more and more into these discussions, uh, and more and more into the, the stuff we've been writing and producing. Um, we hope that you have been too. But... Um, it only gets more and more. I, the buzzers only get more and more intense from here. That's to say, for myself personally, knowing what's coming up. So, wisdom in desert places. Uh, hopefully, by the time you hear this, it'll only be a few weeks before you get the chance to read all our um, written breakdowns of these great stories and the creative contributions that go alongside them. Um, but until until our next podcast, thank you so much for listening. See you then. Yeah, and uh, it's been good to be in person. In person, I've, it works so much better. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's fantastic. Thank you, everybody. And um, stay tuned for the upcoming 
digital release of the incidental encyclical issue 3, Wisdom in Desert Places.